Welcome to the podcast. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Hey listeners, it's Reed. Exciting news to share. For those of you who are already members of Master the Scale, we've added a new membership benefit, the chance to ask me a question and possibly get featured on a future strategy session. If you're not yet a member, then this is the time to join. You'll also get the Master the Scale Courses app and a private podcast feed of our complete uncut 90-minute interviews with guests. To join, sign up at join.masterscale.com slash askread. Join as a member before July 19th and use the code ASKREED on this webpage so you can submit your question for consideration in the very next session. That's join.masterscale.com slash ASKREED. Now, on to the show. As we sit here and record this, 785 million people live without clean water every single day. And I realize this is something most people listening to probably take for granted, right? We woke up this morning, we brushed our teeth, we made our coffee. 10% of the world doesn't have any clean water. And if you don't have water, it impacts health, it impacts education, it impacts the local economy. I could go on and on. And the great thing about working in water, and maybe sometimes the frustrating thing is, it's actually solvable. Charity Water had been in this season of explosive growth. And then the pandemic hit. And people started calling saying, I don't think I can make that commitment. Don't count on me. My first speech back was to 10,000 people at the Bitcoin conference. While we built the largest water charity in America by two or three X, we're not doing enough. I'm focused on growing the community, inviting more people to care about this issue, to care about clean water for others. That's Scott Harrison, founder and CEO of Charity Water. After hitting a wall of fundraising trouble early in the pandemic, Scott and his team bounced back and are on pace for record levels of impact in 2021. I'm Bob Safian former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Scott because he's grown Charity Water's footprint in good times and tough times by taking far-sighted and often unconventional strategic steps. Just recently, he launched a Bitcoin water trust to tap into new assets and a new community of potential donors. But Scott's success is also a product of his passion and his unwavering belief that there's no better investment in people and communities than clean water. We'll start the show in a moment after a word from our exclusive brand partner, Capital One Business. We had this store that the structure was from the 1880s. This is like old wood floors. We were in this open air markets and these stores were lined up and there was the fruit guy and the meat guy. That's Jeff Braverman, CEO of Nuts.com. And that open air market was home to his grandfather's nut business, founded in 1929. But when Jeff was just four or five, the store got bulldozed. We moved into like this indoor mall. As a kid, I would work the cash register. We actually had a roaster. 
So we would be freshly roasting peanuts. Three generations roasted peanuts in that shop until the dawn of the internet era gave the youngest one an idea. I said to my dad and uncle, hey, maybe we can sell nuts online. That pivot to online sales turned out to be a lifeline because, wait for it, their store got bulldozed again in the early 2000s. How did Jeff and his family face these moments of fundamental change? They just kept innovating. And Ann Cave of Capital One Business sees this all the time with the entrepreneurs she works with. The open-air market, that generation has ended. The retail market, maybe that era has ended. Great entrepreneurs and business owners know how to react to change, and that's one of the reasons they can see possibilities when others may see closed doors. What does the Nut Shop 3.0 look like today? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's look at entrepreneurs who are persevering with courage and innovation. I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Scott Harrison, founder and CEO of Charity Water. Scott, thanks for joining us. Bob, it's fun to reconnect. It's been a while. Yeah, we haven't seen each other since the pandemic hit. Some people are trying to wish away or wash away the past year. Others are kind of leaning into lessons, however hard they may have been. What was the last year like for you and for Charity Water? Well, personally, it was a year of immense change. I've lived in New York City for 26 years. Nothing was going to get me out. Raising two young kids in the city. And when the pandemic hit, we had this opportunity to leave the city. We've got a multi-generational family, grandparents and great-grandparents alive. And we pulled them out of Brooklyn. And we rented a 1920s farmhouse about two hours north in Pennsylvania. And we never went back. To the city. So I'm still here uh, in my attic looking at gardens and a very different view than Battery Park City. We've got 27 chickens. We're growing our own food. My kids are four and a half and six and a half. So they've just loved the country life. Is this a permanent move? I'm not sure. We still have an office in Tribeca. And so far, every time I've been in New York, I can't wait to get back to the farm. So it's permanent until it's not, you know, as I told my wife. For your business, my guess is the waves of where and when the pandemic hit different parts of your business evolved during the year. Yeah, that's true. So it hit us really hard in March. I think it was March 8th. There was a COVID-19 case in our building and we shut down our 30,000 square foot headquarters and we never went back to that space. We then saw donations hemorrhage. We lost about $10 million in corporate donations over a period of just a couple of weeks. Charity Water had been in this season of explosive growth, growing 30% and 40%. So we'd grown the org from about $35 million in donations to $90 million in donations in just a couple of years. We were headed into 2020. We were going to have our first $100 million plus year in donations. And then the pandemic hit and people started calling saying, I don't think I can make that commitment. And then in our kind of micro donation business, we saw a lot of people cancel their monthly memberships. So as an exec team, we reacted pretty quickly. We took a 20% pay cut across the board. We kind of slashed the budget and began to cut costs, just making sure we'd be able to weather the storm. We wouldn't run out of cash. And then we kind of saw the impossible happen. And we wound up raising about $90 million 
We saw people come through. We saw our micro donors come through the five and the $10 and the $20 gifts. We saw some really significant gifts from major donors. And it turned out to be an unbelievable year of impact. And we've been able to take those tailwinds really into this year. You and I have talked in the past about your efforts to try to create a system for fundraising at Charity Water where you weren't quite on a the hamster wheel that a lot of right. nonprofits are in, right? Trying to create a system about it. Did you feel like that system held up better? Did you have to adjust that system because of the year? Yeah, it's a great question. So for 10 years, the first 10 years of Charity Water, it was a one-time donation model, peer-to-peer fundraising. People would donate their birthdays to Charity Water. They would run marathons. Kids would sell lemonade. All of these kind of extraordinary activities from a million donors globally. But most of them gave once or fundraised once. And at year 10, we pivoted to the subscription model. You and I had talked about this, but I was fortunate to take Daniel Eck of Spotify to Ethiopia and spend a week with him in the back of Land Rovers, looking at some of the work that he'd funded. He kind of commented on just how our business model must be exhausting to wake up January 1, have the ticker roll back to zero and say, we have to do that all over again and then somehow do more so that we can grow. So that was really a big pivot for us in year 10. We launched what we called The Spring, which is Spotify or Netflix, except it's a donation subscription for clean water. We're 100% of what everybody gives every single month goes straight to the field, helps people get clean water. That grew really quickly right up until the pandemic to over $20 million in annual recurring donations. So being able effectively to start Jan 1, knowing where the next 20 million was coming from and being able to build on that base. What was extraordinary, Bob, was we actually saw our three lowest months of churn in the middle of the pandemic. So we thought people would be leaving in droves as unemployment shot up, as uncertainty in the markets, certainly uncertainty in the economy. And we saw the opposite. We saw a resilience in those people giving 10, 20, $30 every single month. And again, we were able not just to kind of hold steady, but to really significantly grow the spring to grow the subscription product during the pandemic. That's interesting. So the spring group kind of held steady. And that group that you sort of were hearing those corporate donations dropping off, is that the group you call the well? Is that your sort of core operations funders? Yeah, we have this unique business model where 100% of all public donations go into one bank account. We call that the water bank account. And those are donors now from 150 countries globally. In a separately audited bank account, we have 125 entrepreneurs and families that pay all the overhead costs. They pay the staff salaries, they pay the flights, the office costs, the toner for the Epson copy machine. That's what we call the well, that group of 125 families. They also were loyal. So it was really what we wound up losing was the corporate number as so many of our corporate partnerships were in retail and they just completely shuttered their businesses. So that was really what we lost. But then we made that up in the small donations and really the generosity of our well members. You usually do a pretty dramatic fundraiser each year for your key donors and supporters. Were you able to do anything like that this year? No, this was a really cool moment as well. So yeah, we would do these galas every year. We'd raise about $7 million at the gala. And it's a pretty big production and it's months and months of teams putting together 
innovative displays. Or one year we showed a virtual reality film in synchronicity to 400 people in the Met Museum in New York City. Another year we built a screen in the round that was the length of a football field and we shot all the content in 360. And we had a moment where we drilled for water in Ethiopia and we sprayed the whole crowd. So water started falling down on them. So, you know, kind of over the top experiential, visceral galas to put people in the story and then encourage them to be generous. Last year, we did something very different. I, I went out to Columbus, Ohio. We found a production company who built us a COVID-safe studio in the middle of the convention center. And we did an hour-long meeting for those 125 families. We talked to them about the progression of our partners across Africa and India and Southeast Asia, how COVID had impacted our work, we talked about wells being repaired at health clinics. We talked about the hand-washing stations that we were building. We talked about the social distancing education that we were engaged in now across 20-some countries. I'm in a tux talking to people as if they've attended a gala, but they're connected on Zoom. And at the end, the last five minutes, we said, hey, we just want to give you an opportunity to give what's in your heart. There's no chicken dinner. There's no big experience here. Here's the importance of our work. Here's where we're at as an organization. And in the last five minutes of that Zoom call, Bob, with about 120 families, we raised $5 million. Wow. And it was one of the most extraordinary events as we just watch people give generously. As you talk about what you talk to them about, about your operations, your partners on the ground in places all over the world, in Africa and in India, how did you manage those operations, those partnerships? Because as complicated as things were in the United States and from state to state, from country to country, from region to region around the world over the last year, and still it's very uncertain and, and in a lot of places very scary. Yeah, I mean, it was a challenge. Our team manages most of these relationships with boots on the ground. I think we calculated one year they flew to the moon and back three times collectively as a water programs team across 20 some countries. So they manage those relationships on Zoom. A uh, lot of phone calls, a lot of you know getting up in the middle of the night to sync those time zones. But I think what surprised us or maybe what inspired us was our local partners. Many of them went to the governments and classified their organizations as frontline essential workers. Saying clean water in a health crisis, in a pandemic, is more important than ever before. Hygiene, hand washing was really important. So we were able to move forward with the work. Of course, there were some temporary lockdowns, you know, two weeks here, four weeks here. But the images that came in, Bob, throughout the year were our partners out there with masks on, drilling wells, operating the same drilling machines they were operating pre-pandemic, installing these giant blue hand washing stations as the community is sitting six feet apart at a well, learning about how to keep themselves safe with clean water. And a lot of our partners got COVID. A lot of the conversations we had with them, they were experiencing many of the same things we were. There was a real sense of connection, I think, and a shared experience where we're all trying to move the mission forward. And I think it really made the relationships and the organization a lot stronger. Operationally, I mean, you got, I don't know, 
65,000 water projects or something, 12 million people, 20-some countries. As you say, there's a lot of drilling. There's a lot of maintenance that's required and all that. I know you invested ahead of this in certain technology to be able to keep track of that. Were there any things that during this year you were like, oh, it's really good we did that? One of the biggest opportunities for me as a leader was... I was able to host about 30 plus events with our smallest supporters, smallest by dollar amount. And we would invite these spring members who many of them, Bob, were only giving $5 a month. And we would invite them to an hour Zoom and like 600 people would turn up from Slovenia to Ghana to Seattle. And I would report to them almost as shareholders. I would thank them sincerely for their five and $10 a month gifts, their loyalty. I would let them know they were very much needed. And then I would do Q&A at the end. So I got to connect with more members of the Charity Water Global community. We brought our partners in from Uganda and Madagascar and India to talk to our community. So that was kind of a huge win. And now a paradigm shift. We're going to do more of these in the future, even as we resume some of the in-person events. You know, you mentioned the sensors. This is a really important project. Sustainability has been uh, a, a deep focus for Charity Water. We want to make sure that when we invest in building a water project in a rural village in Malawi, uh, in a rural village in Nepal, that water continues to flow for years and years to come. Previously, you know, a lot of people would just drill wells and leave. And there were these statistics we were coming across that about up to 40% of the world's water points are broken, but nobody really knew which 40%. And there wasn't that follow-up mechanism. So we were fortunate many years ago to win a a $5 million innovation grant from Google to begin our journey into sensor technology, into building sensors across 21 countries. And now we have the largest data set in the history of the world when it comes to rural water supply. So we're monitoring well over a billion liters through our sensors. We're still early with this, but we really think this is the future and will help us just bring greater transparency to the water sector and certainly knowing more about our projects. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our exclusive partner, Capital One Business. We've been in Christmas season since uh, March (laughs) of 2020 because every day was Christmas with the volume we were facing. We're back with Jeff Braverman of Nuts.com. And since the start of the pandemic, their e-commerce business has been booming. Keeping up with demand meant hiring hundreds of new workers to prepare and hand-pack things like white chocolate cashews. We have to roast the cashews, toffee glaze them, and then cover them with white chocolate. You can't just do that the day before the order comes in. Jeff quickly hired workers to roast, glaze, and ship those nuts. But as he scaled, he learned that hiring wasn't enough. We have our production side where we're filling all the bags, and that's where most of our labor is. Our two leads were out. If the leads aren't trained up well enough, it requires me to be on the floor. (laughs) So we didn't have the right levels of management. We didn't have the right training. We've had employees for such a long time. But you need to be able to elevate them properly, give them the toolkit. It's a classic challenge faced by entrepreneurs coming out of the pandemic. During the crisis, leaders stepped onto the floor. But at some point, Jeff says... You have to step back. You need structure and you need process as you scale, because otherwise you get into trouble. Building structure to elevate their teams. 
That's a challenge Capital One businesses and KFCs and so many entrepreneurs who've scaled with unexpected speed. There's a moment where they need to empower their teams as they start to think about innovating for the future. How do we scale our operations, our systems for this new normal? Jeff knows he's got to focus on the big picture, but can he learn to share the reins? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Entrepreneurs, who are persevering with grit and determination. So I have to ask you about the Bitcoin Water Trust. Yes. I keep saying that some things happening in the crypto world sound like an HBO special. So what is the Bitcoin Water Trust and how did it come about? What are you hoping for out of it? Well, I was just in Miami a couple of weeks ago. My first speech back was to 10,000 people at the Bitcoin conference sandwiched between Jack Dorsey and Floyd Mayweather. So that'll tell you something about that conference. (laughs) Look, Charity Water was an early adopter taking in Bitcoin as donations. In 2014, we started accepting Bitcoin. Funny story, Tony Hawk came to one of our galas and he pledged $1,500 at the gala and he decided to pay in Bitcoin, which was five Bitcoin at the time. So just like anything else, we promptly sold Tony Hawk's five Bitcoin for about $312 each. And we sent that $1,500 to the field to help a bunch of people. And over time, we collected 569 Bitcoin, to be precise. We sold that Bitcoin for $4.4 million. And just to give you a sense of just over the last kind of, call it 60 days of crazy volatility, that $4.4 million would be worth somewhere between 25 to $39 million. So somewhere between, what, 6 and 9x impact had we held for a couple of years. And it's not traditional for charities. We were following the best practice. If you give me Apple stock today, I'm going to sell it. You give me the stock to go and liquidate it and turn it into clean water for people in need. So we handled Bitcoin or Ether like any other asset that we received. And the more I started to learn about the technology, to be quite honest, I became bullish on the asset personally. I believe it has a very high probability of appreciating over time. Then I started learning that pretty much everybody in the Bitcoin community thinks the same thing to an order of magnitude more. So we just came up with a pretty simple idea after talking with a lot of them saying, why don't we accept Bitcoin in a special trust and lock it up and hold it for about five years? through one full Bitcoin cycle. And let's open up the trust in 2025 and see what it is, what it's worth. Many people said specifically, I would never give you a Bitcoin to turn into fiat right now. I believe it is massively undervalued, but I will give you a Bitcoin if you promise me you're going to hold on to it. So this is off to the side. I think it's important to say of the core business, Charity Water is going to raise over $100 million this year. We're going to hopefully reach a milestone of 15 million people served. But this is a special trust for people who want to give Bitcoin as an appreciated asset in the hopes that it will grow and have an impact. So we've now got about $3.6 million committed in Bitcoin just in a few weeks with this new strategy. $3.6 million today, I believe it could be a much greater impact going forward in the future. And is the idea that eventually this trust becomes like an endowment? I mean, five years from now, are you going to liquidate it then? Or is the idea that this will be a perpetuating another kind of well to feed the organization? 
The promise that we're making right now is that we are not going to sell any of the Bitcoin in this trust until at least 2025. I don't think I imagine a waterfall moment. I certainly don't imagine a moment where, you know, January 1, 2025, we turn everything into U.S. dollars and put it in a U.S. dollar bank account. The intent actually is to spend the trust in Bitcoin. And I imagine we might be able to actually fund water projects in Ghana or Malawi directly with Bitcoin or another stablecoin potentially. And I think as valuable as the Bitcoin that we will receive in the trust, and we're so far at 99 committed Bitcoin, is really the relationships with the people that we're getting to talk to. It sounds like you're stronger now coming out of the pandemic than you were going in with more new ideas and more resources coming in. When you look to the future, what's at stake for Charity Water right now? Well, here's the thing, Bob. I started Charity Water when I was 30. I was living on a closet floor in New York City with a pretty big vision of trying to bring clean and safe drinking water to everybody on the planet. So 15 years later, I'm focused on the same thing. And by the end of the year, we'll have helped about 15 million people out of 785 million people. Okay. So it's a huge volume of people. You know, it's what? 1.7, 1.8% of the global problem solved. So I, I feel like so much is left to do. We've only raised about $600 million for clean water for the world, Bob. Like that's not a lot of money. That is a fraction of what is needed to, to truly move the needle. As we record this, me in an attic. Are you still in Brooklyn? I am. I am. You're still in Brooklyn. Okay. So, you know, me and my attic in Pennsylvania, you in Brooklyn, one out of 10 people in the world, they're drinking bad water today. 10% of the planet is living without the most basic needs. So here we are with our headphones and our fancy podcast equipment and Zoom and our internet and talking about cryptocurrency and 785 million people lack the most basic need. And while we built the largest water charity in America by two or three X, we're not doing enough. I'm focused on growing the community, inviting more people to care about this issue, to care about clean water for others and trying to grow all of the different communities within charity water to grow the well, those 125 families that pay for the overhead, to grow the subscription community from what? 80,000. I mean, Bob, what does Netflix have now? 150 million people? Disney Plus, I think, got to 100 million subscribers. We have 80,000 people that are showing up for clean water. So I, I believe that's a fraction of what is possible. And look, we don't have access to the capital markets. We don't have the marketing budgets that a Disney or a Netflix has. We kind of have to grow this with word of mouth. But there's a lot more left to be done. And I really believe that the best is ahead. Do you see the outside cultural environment shifting at all in the way people respond to water? Bob, it feels a lot harder than it should. <laughs> I mean, convincing people to part with their money is a challenge. You know, fundraising is hard. And I coach and mentor a bunch of young social entrepreneurs. I was just on the phone yesterday with a guy who hit his first million dollars. He just crossed the million dollars raised mark. And... He said to me, he's like, is it still hard when you're trying to raise $100 million a year? I'm like, yes, it is still incredibly hard. So I think there's a lot to be said for showing up, for consistency, for 
staying true to your values. I mean, I'm trying to build an organization that is transparent, that is high integrity, that is effective. And I think just by being here, just by doing the same thing diligently for 15 years allows great things to happen. And I kind of feel like we're going to get the benefit of many of the seeds that were sown seven years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago. And we're starting to see that. So it doesn't feel like there's a tipping point that's just on the horizon. It feels like you got to keep showing up. You got to keep telling the story. Yeah, you mentioned Daniel Eck earlier. And I, re I remember asking him, Spotify's grown so much. And I was like, what's been the hardest phase? And he said to me, the hardest phase is always the next phase. Like I've gotten this far. It's always the next phase. It doesn't get any easier. It just gets harder. It's true. It's true. As we sit here and record this, 785 million people live without clean water every single day. 82% of those people live in rural areas. 18% of those people live in cities and towns. And I realize this is something most people listening to probably take for granted, right? We woke up this morning, we brushed our teeth, we made our coffee. Maybe we even have sparkling water in the fridge or bottled water to take to the gym or the yoga studio. 10% of the world doesn't have any clean water to drink. And if you don't have water, it impacts health. Up to 50% of the disease in many of these countries is because of the lack of clean water, lack of access to sanitation, but impacts education. This is one of the top reasons why girls drop out of school because it's their job to go and walk sometimes hours for water. It impacts the local economy. I could go on and on. And the great thing about working in water, and maybe sometimes the frustrating thing is, it's actually solvable, right? It's not like we're looking for a new vaccine or a cure to some incurable disease. We know how to get people clean and safe drinking water. And Charity Water's taken a solution agnostic approach now for 15 years. We fund 13 or 14 different technologies across a global portfolio, but sometimes it's as simple as drilling a well or building a rainwater harvesting system or biosand filters. And there's always a solution. It takes funding, it takes capital, it takes groups that can go out and turn that capital into the construction of water projects. So when you're able to do that, you get all these amazing benefits beyond just the common sense of clean water you get health benefits. You give time back to women and girls who can use that extra time to sell things at the market, to earn extra income, to lead their communities forward. When you hook up schools with clean water and sanitation, you get better students. They get better grades. So I think one of the great things, maybe 15 years into this journey with the same mission, the same simple mission as when I started, bring clean water to everybody in the world, is that it really is an inarguable good. It is really one of the few things everybody can agree on. It's just a good thing to do. Bob, no one has told me to stop in 15 years. Scott, let them drink bad water. Let the women walk eight hours a day to a dirty swamp, risking their lives or attack or like no one believes that. So whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a libertarian or an independent, everybody can come together and agree on clean water for others. So it's allowed us to build a really big tent and maybe some positive consensus in a world that certainly feels more fractured and divided than anything I've experienced in my 45 years of life. So I think that's another benefit, something we're trying to lean into at Charity Water, is inviting people to come to this table of 
generosity of compassionately caring for others and agreeing to agree on this one common good. Water is life. I mean, I still can't think of a better place to put a philanthropic dollar that is aimed at human flourishing, that is aimed at ending needless human suffering. I can't think of a better place to put it than in clean water. That keeps us going, Bob. That keeps us energetically telling the story, retelling the story, trying to tell it, you know, like it's the first time. Well, Scott, as always, I love your passion and your creativity and your intensity about tackling this challenge that, as you say, we should be able to solve and we can, and you're making strides on. So anyway, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. And now, a final word from our exclusive brand partner, Capital One Business. We built a tremendous team in the plant, and now it's like, we want to play ball. We're back one more time with Jeff Braverman of Nuts.com. He's been telling us how elevating his team will improve operations as his business scales. But he's also hiring at the senior management level, and that's going to mean letting go of some control. To do what I want to do, I've made some strides recently. It's not about me. It's about the team because I can't do the work of 50 people anymore. What I'm thinking about now is hiring, hiring the right people to frankly make it more fun. People who are hopefully smarter than I am, we have tons of ideas. The key thing that we need to latch onto is now execution. Sharing the reins can be scary when you've got a family business, and Jeff would like to keep it in the family. I get in contact by investors all the time, but it puts you on a path where you maybe lose optionality. I like the idea of keeping this independent. My sons, will there be a place for them? It'd be nice. I think family business is a nice thing. Nuts.com has come a long way from that stall in an open-air market in Newark, New Jersey. I had a dream a few nights ago about being this little kid in the store. It gave me like the chills. It was like so humbling. Oh my God, look what we've done. Look what we built. And I think my grandfather would be really proud. Whether you're running a third generation business or a brand new startup, building a business that will endure is both a challenge and an opportunity. That's what Ann Cave hears from the entrepreneurs she works with at Capital One. To know what Jeff's grandfather created lives on and his grandson, it gives you goosebumps. While you may not always hear that it's going to be passed down to a next generation, you do hear how do we nurture this baby almost that is a business and how do you keep it continuing to evolve, stay relevant, and create an impact for the future. I think that's the commonality. Capital One Business is proud to celebrate business owners as they innovate to unlock the next chapter of their success. As with every ad on Masters of Scale, the entrepreneur you just heard from was real and unscripted. Because Capital One is a financial institution, it's important to them to be transparent about the relationship with the business owners we interview. Capital One did compensate this entrepreneur for participating in this campaign. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely with sanitized audio gear. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producers are Jordan McLeod, Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark Gray, Hallie Bondi, Marie McCoy Thompson, Christina Gonzalez, and Chris McLeod. Our editor at large is Bob Safian. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Daniel Nissenbaum. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, and Andrew Nault. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Elisa Schreiber, David Sanford, Saida Sepieva, 
Adam Heiner, Emily McManus, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Sarah Sandman, Carrie Goldstein, Anna Pisano, Mina Kurosawa, Charlie Manessis, and Colin Howarth. Enjoy today's show. Please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. With financial regulators, what's behind the allegations? Plus, President Biden is considering an executive order to rein in big business, including big tech. So there's a whole wide range of areas that go beyond antitrust where uh, regulators could try and force tech companies to engage in what they consider to be more competitive and transparent practices. And how to deal graciously with jealousy at work. It's Wednesday, June 30th. I'm Anne-Marie Fertoli for The Wall Street Journal. This is the PM edition of What's News, the top headlines and business stories that moved the world today. In a blow to fast-growing online brokerage Robinhood, the company has agreed to pay nearly $70 million to resolve allegations made by the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. FINRA says that Robinhood misled customers, approved ineligible traders for risky strategies, and didn't supervise technology that failed, locking millions of people out of trading. Dave Michaels, who covers financial enforcement for The Wall Street Journal, has more. FINRA cites an example where a customer joined Robinhood started to set up their account. And when they were setting up their account, they were asked some basic questions like, do you have investing experience? What's your risk tolerance? And the person said, I don't have investing much investing experience and my risk tolerance is low. And then they asked to trade options. And then the Robinhood app reasonably told them, no, you know, you, you don't, based on your prior answers, it doesn't sound like options are for you. Then the customer revised their answers to the prior questions and said, well, actually I have medium level investing experience. And my my risk appetite is higher. And so immediately within seconds, basically, the app qualified them to trade options. So what FINRA is signaling is that, you know, these questions, they could be gamed. People could lie about their qualifications or their experience, and they they could get very easily and seamlessly the chance to trade options, which later could backfire on them, raising questions about whether Robinhood's screening process was good enough. Robinhood has neither admitted nor denied the allegations. In a written statement to FINRA, the brokerage said it has enhanced oversight of customers' use of options and is conducting monthly reviews to ensure that they meet eligibility rules. Robinhood's planned initial public offering is one of the most anticipated of the year. My co-host Mark Stewart will have more on that and how Robinhood wants to get retail traders in on the IPO on tomorrow morning's show. The House has approved the creation of a select committee to investigate the January 6th assault on the Capitol. The 222 to 190 vote fell largely along party lines. The committee, impaneled in the House, does not need Senate approval. It will be made up of 13 members of Congress appointed by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who will consult with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. 
Today was the last day of the first half of the trading year, and the major U.S. stock indexes ended it with double-digit gains. The Dow rose 13 percent, and the S&P 500 climbed 14 percent so far this year. Both indexes closed out their fifth consecutive quarter of gains. The Nasdaq is up 13 percent. And shares of Chinese ride-sharing company Didi rose to start its first trading day. But the rally slowed in the afternoon. Shares of Didi ended the day up just 1 percent at $14.14. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office is expected to charge the Trump Organization and its CFO, Alan Weisselberg, with tax-related crimes tomorrow, according to people familiar with the matter. They say the charges are expected to be related to allegedly evading taxes on fringe benefits. For months, the Manhattan DA and others have been investigating whether Weisselberg or other employees avoided paying taxes on perks like cars, apartments, or private school tuition they received from the Trump Organization. The charges would be the first in a three-year investigation into former President Trump's company, but his lawyer said the initial charges won't implicate Trump himself. Amazon is asking for the Federal Trade Commission to recuse its new chair, Lena Khan, from antitrust investigations of the company, citing Khan's past criticism of the tech giant. An FTC spokeswoman declined to comment. The FTC has an open antitrust investigation into Amazon's business practices and is reviewing its planned acquisition of Hollywood studio MGM. Khan's been a leading critic of dominant technology companies, especially Amazon, and a central figure in a movement that favors sweeping changes to antitrust enforcement. Entertainer Bill Cosby was released from prison today after the Pennsylvania Supreme Court overturned his sexual assault conviction. Cosby has been serving a 10-year sentence for the sexual assault of former basketball player Andrea Constand. The high court determined that it was unfair that Cosby was prosecuted using evidence that he divulged in a 2005 civil proceeding after he was assured by an earlier prosecutor that there would be no criminal case brought against him. The case was one of the key prosecutions in the Me Too movement that brought sexual assault against women onto the national stage. And former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, the architect of the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, has died at the age of 88. Rumsfeld was the only person to serve as defense secretary twice, once under the Ford administration and then again under the George W. Bush administration. Coming up, why the Biden administration is focused on checking the power of big business. I'm Manveen Rana, the host of Stories of Our Times, the daily podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times. Every weekday, we look at one big story in depth. From the aftermath of the Beirut explosion to the storming of the U.S. Capitol. We take you to the heart of the stories that matter with exclusive access and reporting. There's another side to this. There's another story. It's published for the start of your day and you can listen for free on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Stories of Our Times. Big tech has been under a lot of scrutiny in Washington, and there have been calls to break up some of the biggest companies. But earlier this week, a federal judge threw out two antitrust lawsuits against Facebook before they even got off the ground. Now, we report that the Biden administration is taking a close look at big tech and big business overall. According to people familiar with the plans, President Biden is considering a new executive order directing government agencies to strengthen their oversight of industries that they perceive to be dominated by just a few companies. It could impact the regulation of a broad swath of the economy, from airlines to agriculture to tech. 
Joining me now to talk about it and how these industries are likely to react is senior Washington correspondent Jake Schlesinger. Hi, Jake. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. So, Jake, part of the goal here is to make sure there's enough competition and that no business or company is dominant within an industry. Can you tell us more about the idea behind what would be a pretty sweeping order here? Part of the debate within the Biden administration, uh, and again, nothing has been announced, so this is you know people who have been following this discussion, really has to do with, first of all, the premise that the American economy is plagued by too much concentration in a wide number of sectors, and that the responses that the government should employ go beyond traditional antitrust, which is law enforcement suing to block mergers and really needs to become a much broader so-called competition policy that employs agencies across the government, touching on virtually every sector of the American economy. So let's talk about one of the pretty big ones here, big tech companies, which are already under a lot of scrutiny in Washington. How would this order be focused on addressing issues within big tech, especially antitrust concerns? So big tech is under the spotlight, um, as you noted, in a lot of different ways. And there's already, in fact, a number of, of antitrust suits that have been filed against them. But this would give agencies other ways of declaring that there's non-competitive practices or over-concentration that don't necessarily have to rely on antitrust enforcement. So, for example, you know, one area that, that has come up a lot in the past and could possibly be revived has to do with so-called net neutrality, where you're declaring that internet providers aren't competitive enough and actually provide better access to users without favoring any. So there's a whole wide range of areas that go beyond antitrust where uh, regulators could try and force tech companies to engage in what they consider to be more competitive and transparent practices. Let's go to a very different industry, agriculture. How would this order impact agriculture? So, you know, the question of concentration in the agricultural sector has been one that has emerged in debates in the Farm Belt for several years now and grown more intense. There's a feeling, certainly among progressive politicians and small farmers, that small farmers are being increasingly squeezed by whether it's large concentration in the distribution system among a handful of meat packers or just a very few number of suppliers of machines and farm equipment. And so what this might do possibly is to give small farmers more power to sue, say, a bigger distributor or to try and create greater transparency on disclosure of, of how the contracts are written. So in their mind might get a better deal from big distributors rather than the current assertion that they're being squeezed because there's only really one or two distributors that they can go to. What are some of the other industries that might be impacted here? So another one that comes up a lot in the discussions is airlines. And again, that's a sector where there's a feeling that there's not as much competition, even though there might be nationally, that a number of routes are largely dominated by one or two airlines. And so uh, an idea that has come up on and off in the past is forcing airlines on routes where there's not a lot of competition to do more to disclose fees because customers don't really have the choice of competing in terms of choosing an airline over another based on on fees. And so giving them a chance to either understand the fees and protest that or, or possibly even regulating what fees can be charged because there's the allegations there's less competition. Those are the kind of things that come up a lot, too. Jake, how does this compare to a similar effort undertaken by the Obama administration in 2016? 
In the end of the Obama administration, President Obama also issued an executive order, again, asserting that there's insufficient competition across the U.S. economy, urging what he called a whole-of-government approach to boost competition. And that did spur some action on things like poultry farmers uh, and their interactions with meatpackers, on airline baggage fee disclosures, on competition for what mattered at the time, less so now as we all stream, but on set-top boxes for cable and satellite television. So the concepts, I think, are broadly similar. The difference is that order came out at the very tail end of the administration, and there wasn't really time to develop any meaningful action. A couple of the actions that had been prompted by that order were quickly reversed when President Trump took office. And so I think the spirit will be similar, but the argument is that this would uh, have a lot more impact, first of all, because it's coming much earlier in, in this administration, and secondly, because the scholarship and the knowledge about this issue, which was really put on the table under the Obama administration, is now much more developed. Now, there is the expectation that this effort is likely to face criticism from some business leaders as well as some Republicans. What have you heard so far on that front? Well, you know, it's still early because the orders haven't been put out, but I know that the business groups are monitoring this extremely carefully. There is concern there that, you know, this will be a reason to impose a whole bunch of new regulations that they would tend to impose, concern that this would, in the words of one business lobbyist I spoke with for the story, would further politicize the antitrust process, which is seen as largely a legal process by kind of blurring the lines between what is a a, a sort of legal case and versus a political policy decision. And, you know, increasingly business has become litigious, particularly on regulation and you know, once this thing becomes more concrete and gets translated into rules, you know, you can probably expect to see a lot more lawsuits filed in courts on this. That's Wall Street Journal senior Washington correspondent Jake Schlesinger. Jake, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Finally, competition and friendly rivalries are often common at the office, but feelings of jealousy over a coworker's promotion or shout out at a team meeting can be detrimental. They can cause us to question ourselves and feel threatened. So, how do you move past these emotions of insecurity without letting them ruin your career? Our work and life columnist Rachel Feinzig has some tips. So even if you're feeling terrible, send a congratulatory note. You'll start to see yourself as the bigger person. Another idea is to just kind of let these feelings fuel you to up your own game. You know, just feeling a little competitive with a colleague isn't in and of itself a bad thing. This obviously isn't true in every workplace. Sometimes success can be a scarce resource, but in many cases, there's room for you to ascend to and to kind of keep that in mind. You can also just try to build your confidence, keep a brag file where you're detailing kind of wins that you've had at work, successes. And the last thing I would say is just think about who you're surrounding yourself with in your personal life or at work. You know, maybe some conversations with your colleagues are not a positive thing for you and you need to take a little bit of a breather. Maybe the people you follow on social media are making you feel terrible. But I think there can be some sense of, you know, are there things that are just hurting us that we could kind of pull back from that would put us in a more confident place. And that's what's news for this Wednesday afternoon. We'll be back tomorrow morning. If you like our show, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anne-Marie Fertoli for The Wall Street Journal.
this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. The Takeaway is brought to you by Progressive. Are you thinking more about how to tighten up your budget these days? Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save over $700 on average, and customers can qualify for an average of six discounts when they sign up. A little off your rate each month goes a long way. Get a quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National annual average insurance savings by new customers surveyed in 2020. Potential savings will vary. Discounts vary and are not available in all states and situations. Out of bed style. You're listening to We Love Radio. Doing the yin and the yang, the hip and the hop, the stupid fresh thing, the flippity flop. Oh! I have today's forecast for you. Hot! Don't worry, you're in the right place. No, Samuel Jackson is not sitting in as today's guest host. But in the clip you just heard, he was playing a radio DJ in Spike Lee's 1989 classic, Do the Right Thing, a film where the lead character is arguably the sweltering summer heat. Spike's unbearable heat is a lot like the scorching temperatures many Americans are enduring this week. Seriously, take a look at the high temperatures across the country and you'll see the U.S. map is redder than election night 1984. Sorry, that's a little electoral college weather joke. But this, this heat wave is not funny. I know for most of us, the heat is simply an irritation or an inconvenience. But for many others, it's deadly. A three-day heat wave has gripped the Pacific Northwest, parts of the East Coast, and Canada. And the results have turned deadly. At least two deaths near Seattle are blamed on the record high temperatures. In Oregon, authorities say the heat may have claimed the life of a farm worker near Portland. North of the border in British Columbia, about 100 deaths are being linked to the heat wave. Emergency responders in Vancouver are stretched thin, with some people waiting hours for an ambulance. This heat is oppressive in every sense, because some residents are far more vulnerable to the dire effects of heat. Let's go back 26 years to the summer of 1995. The city of Chicago experienced the deadliest heat wave in U.S. history, resulting in 739 deaths in just one week. On July 13th of that year, the mercury rose to 106 degrees and for a week posted highs ranging from the upper 90s to the low 100s. So many began to die that the deceased were stored in refrigerated trucks in the parking lot of the Cook County morgue. The normal morgue facility simply couldn't handle this many deaths in so short a period of time. Sound from the PBS documentary Chicago Tonight on the 1995 Chicago heat wave. As you can hear, these deaths were not evenly distributed across the city's residents or neighborhoods. Well, the most likely to die were the elderly, first and foremost, and particularly the elderly poor, and even more specifically, poor elderly who lived alone. The elderly and poor. 26 years ago, were most likely to die of Chicago's heat. 
The elderly and poor, 16 years ago, were most likely to die when Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans. The elderly and poor, last year, they were the most likely to die during the Texas ice storms. The elderly and poor continued to bear the brunt of the global pandemic. Heat, ice, hurricane, virus. If all these natural disasters are claiming the same victims, maybe they aren't so natural. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, in for Tanzina Vega, and this is where we begin on The Takeaway. And to help us get a better understanding of the human-created disasters lurking beneath our natural disasters is Eric Kleinenberg, author of Heat Wave, A Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago, and of Palaces for the People, How Social Infrastructure Can Help Fight Inequality, Polarization, and the Decline of Civic Life. Eric, thanks for being here. It's, it's good to be here, not, not for this reason, but good to hear your voice. <laughs> Always nice to talk with you, Eric. And because we have kind of an embarrassment of riches today, we are also joined by Kendra Pierre-Lewis, who is Senior Climate Reporter for the Gimlet Spotify podcast, How to Save a Planet. Kendra, welcome back to The Takeaway. Thanks so much for having me, Melissa. Now, I want to start with you, Kendra. Can you define for us what a heat wave is? So in, in general, in the United States, a uh, heat wave is basically considered three or more days of 90 degrees or warmer temperatures. Um, so it's just heat. It's exactly what you think it is. It's several days of hot temperatures. Now, are they getting worse or is it just kind of hot in summer? Uh, they're getting worse. And actually, one of the things that I, I think it when we look at sort of what happened in the Pacific Northwest, when we look at what happened on the East Coast, where Boston hit 99 degrees, we very much look at these upper temperatures, 117, I think, in, um, in Washington State, 99 in Boston, as I mentioned. Um, but we don't look at the lower temperatures, which is the overnight lows. And those are going up even faster than the daily highs. And those are what are catastrophic. Those are what are killing people. The body can and, you know, the elderly, young children, people on certain medications, they're more sensitive to heat. But in general, the human body can withstand a certain amount of heat. We're sort of built for some of this, but we need a break. And we're not getting that break because it's so hot in the night. And that's completely in line with climate prediction, projections. You know, cold things are warming faster than hot things. Nights are warming faster than days. Winter is warming faster than summer. All right. So, Eric, I heard a little bit of a, a, a clue there potentially from Kendra about why it is the poor and the elderly, or at least certainly the elderly who might be most um, vulnerable in a heat wave. But but you're the one who, who really have, has helped me think through this. Can you explain why some communities are so much more vulnerable than others? Well, sure. The, the first thing is that, you know, unlike a, a hurricane or an earthquake, there's a very simple way for people to protect themselves uh, during a heat wave if the power is working, and that's to turn on air conditioning, uh, which the majority of Americans do. But it turns out not every American has access to air conditioning, and that access is patterned. So we see in poor communities, air conditioning is not available. And we also now increasingly see uh, a number of places where the power grid is unable to keep up with contemporary demands. And so we have both the, the acute crisis uh, of poverty and isolation that puts some people at risk, and we have this emerging crisis of climate change overwhelming the capacity of our infrastructure to protect us. So th is this as simple as kind of government um, providing low-cost air conditioning uh, to people who don't currently have access to it? 
I mean, in theory, uh, if we had a reliable power grid and everyone could just turn on the air conditioning uh, when they needed it, yes, you could reduce heat deaths. The problem, of course, uh, is it's it's very difficult to do that. We've shown no political will to do that. And then, of, and then the other thing is, if we rely on air conditioning to get through the heat, and the summers are getting hotter and hotter. I mean, I keep telling everyone what we're calling a heat wave is what our children are going to call summer. Uh, so we, we reach a point where we're using air conditioning all the time. That air conditioning is contributing to global warming. It's making things worse. So what I have been arguing is that fundamentally a, a, the heat wave just shows us how much vulnerability it, there is out there. It, it, it highlights inequalities that we work very hard not to see all the time. When we look at who's dying and where they're dying in heat crises or in hurricanes or in pandemics, we learn something fundamental about ourselves. And, and the burning question for me is not just how we deal with climate change, but also how we protect each other. All right, Kendra, let's go to, to just that, right? So the, I think this tension is such a critical one. Like, okay, you know, imagine we suddenly had the political will. We could just hand out, you know, window units to everyone. Everyone would have at least one room um, that, you know, that was air conditioned. But then these other pieces of how that could have negative effects on the climate. So, so just pause and walk me through this a little bit. When we're looking at these current heat waves, what are the environmental factors that are currently contributing to making them worse? And, and, and is fixing it going to make it, e fixing it for people going to make it even worse for the earth? Yes, I feel like there are kind of three buckets that we can put it in. One is just climate change. We are dealing with the fallout of emissions that we have released into the atmosphere 10 to 20 years ago. And every day that we don't rein in emissions, it's going to get hotter and hotter. We're currently dealing with about 1.1 degrees Celsius of warming. The goal under the Paris Climate Agreement is to keep it to at least two, ideally under 1.5. Um, and every day that we delay in sort of enacting policies to kind of keep that threshold, we're kind of committing ourselves to an even hotter future. So there's that climate change bucket that sort of is making the present situation likely. And then there's sort of a broader infrastructure bucket, which is we know that cities, for example, are hotter than rural areas just because of the amount of concrete and just hardscaping that are baked into those areas. You can also look at traditional redlining maps to see that like communities of color are far less likely to have trees and shade cover, which provides some cooling. So there's, and then there's this third element too, which is like, it's not just air conditioning. If you look at, you know, Seattle, which is arguably the least air conditioned metro in the United States. So 56% of Seattle residents going into this heat wave did not have air conditioning. They also are in homes that aren't well insulated because for a long time, the Pacific Northwest didn't invest in insulation. So there are things that you can do, which is you can kind of run the AC for a while. Like I do this, actually, I run the AC for a while and then um, I turn it off at the hottest time of the day because my air conditioning unit uh, whoever built my building was not very thoughtful and it just bakes in the sun and it doesn't work very well from 12 to three. So rather than run it, I run it in the morning, get it cool in here, turn it off during the hottest part of the day when it's not working effectively anyway. And I can do that because my home is well insulated. So it keeps that cool air trapped inside for a while, right? If you don't have any insulation, the second your AC stops running, you start spewing that hot air out. And you're sort of seeing this kind of across the country that homes were not designed for the heat that we're, we have. So there's this other bucket where we need to think through how do we construct our homes? It is it is kind of a hint that there are like, if you go into the South, that there are homes that are designed for New England that were constructed in the South. So without outside air conditioning, there's no way you're going to keep those homes cool. So there are ways that you can actually keep a space cool um, that aren't as dependent 
on, on conventional air conditioning, but we don't, we're not investing in those ways of building design. Um, and then there's a third thing, which is that like all of this has a limit, right? Because we still need people to pick our produce. We still need construction workers. And if the summers continue getting this hot and you're sort of seeing this already in Arizona, people are going to have to shift cycles. Like people are going to have to start doing things at night that they used to do in the day because it's just too hot to go outside. Listen, as a woman who lived in a shotgun home in New Orleans with 10 foot ceilings, I, I'm absolutely clear about your point about how construction uh, can sort of meet the needs of the climate. And at the you know, as you make the point about sort of what some of our workplaces are like, it also occurs to me that we are talking about homes and having a home or an apartment or a house as though that is a universal experience. So Eric, let me come to you on this as well. I just remember so distinctly from from your text, Heat Wave, which as you know, I've taught every chance I get, that Part of the issue here also had to do with folks who were living in places that had maybe just one room, um, where people were actually afraid of of uh, crime on the street, so they were closing their windows instead of having them open for ventilation. How does that social infrastructure impact? Well, the neighborhood environment matters. Uh, if you're in a physical place that uh, gets very hot, or if you're in a neighborhood that kind of encourages people to hunker down at home as a survival strategy, you know, because there's a lot of crime, or if there's just not a lot of places to go, you know, that are social and protective, uh, people get isolated. And it, and the thing about the heat is it, it combines with our physical and social vulnerability uh, to imperil some of us. And in disaster after disaster, we see the same pattern. It's the same neighborhoods. It's the same buildings. It's the same people. So that also goes to another question. If we know in advance who's at risk, why aren't we doing more as a society to take care of them? Kendra, so for real, we're talking about wildfires now coming out of the drought and the heat when we are looking at these compounding um, disasters like this, is there a way to prepare in advance? Should we be expecting this? And and what can we do collectively to build some infrastructure around it? Can I be honest for a second? I'm kind of losing my mind, I feel like, these days <laughs> because um, everyone's paying attention now because it's hot. And the second it gets cold again, people are going to stop paying attention. And yes, we should be preparing, preparing for these compounding disasters because they've already happened. Last year, um, Lake Charles got hit by multiple hurricanes. And in between the multiple hurricanes, um, it had to deal with a heat wave without electricity because electricity was out because of the hurricane. Um, you know, last year in Central America, they got hit by... Um, Iota, and when in some communities that got hit by Hurricane Iota or Tropical Storm Iota were like, oh, you know, there isn't anything left to destroy because Eta, which hit us two weeks earlier, already destroyed everything. And so, yes, we should be preparing for compounding disasters. And some of that is infrastructure. Some of that is getting people out of harm's way. And, you know, a lot of that is reducing, and also a lot of that is reducing climate emissions, which the federal government continues to remain tacitly unwilling to do. Um, the infrastructure budget just got slashed dramatically around its climate action. And everyone keeps kicking the bucket down the can. Um, kicking the can down the, the lane or whatever. And it's like, it's here. Like we're literally dealing with the effects of it and we're still not reining in emissions. We're still not doing the things. We're still not preparing in the ways that we need to prepare because the second things get quote unquote closer to normal, we forget. 
So I so appreciate your honesty and, and the intensity of this sense of like, no, for real, we have had this conversation before and we are losing people and we're, and, and it makes us feel like we're losing our minds. And so Eric, let me come to you on this because part of what I notice when we get into the, you know, the hurricane season or into the wildfire season or we start seeing the droughts is, When we talk about disaster preparedness, it is very individualized. Like, do you and your family have a plan, right? Do you have a backup generator? It's like, just you, how are you going to fix this? Is there a way that we can collectively, collaboratively, socially prepare for disaster rather than expecting each individual and household to do so? Well, we have to, because as we all can see, this is not a problem that individuals can solve. And so now we move from the realm of uh, weather and society to the domain of politics. And someone asked me this week uh, on Twitter, you know, what can you do to help people during this moment? And I said, the way to help people right now this week when there's searing heat uh, is to check in on people who are close to you, whether that's physical, physically close or socially close, and, and scream for everyone in your community to do the same. But what we do long term uh, is everything in the political sphere uh, to elect officials who are going to take global warming seriously. Uh, to work in our communities to make sure that uh, we have a collective plan to look after each other, to uh, push for uh, new kinds of energy, renewable energy, uh, and uh, to make sure that we don't uh, think that this is all about, you know, what one mayor does or one, what, what one governor does, how they perform in an individual event. This is now the new normal. We will deal with weather like this for the rest of our lives because we're in a new climate. And the only way that we can address it is to, is to rebuild. So now I feel really sad because, Eric, for you to bring us um, to the land of politics as a place where um, potentially we could do collective and collaborative work um, feels like nearly impossible um, right now in this moment where we so are so likely to see each other as the enemy across ideological or partisan differences when there is so little trust um, in the government. Is the first piece of infrastructure building um, actually figuring out how to trust each other and trust the, the processes we have for making collective decisions like science and government? Melissa, I don't think that we fix this ideologically. I don't think we'll have a debate where someone will articulate a position that's so compelling that everyone on the left and the right and the blue and the red will come together. I think we fix this by making things, by solving problems. And so I share your cynicism. Uh, This is a horrible time uh, for divisive and violent uh, partisan politics in the United States. Uh, It feels as if uh, we are just at the edge of having everything fall apart. But we are also at the beginning of a, of a, of a rebuilding process. Uh, what's happening with a kind of infrastructure campaign, uh, the, the public programs that we are building give us what I think is the most exciting opportunity in my lifetime uh, to create something that's fundamentally different, uh, to get off the track that we've been on, on for decades. I'm not saying it's going to happen, Melissa. I'm not that glib or naive, uh, but I think this is the fight of our lives. And our success depends on our capacity to link these overlapping 
overlapping crises, you know, the climate emergency, the COVID emergency, uh, the racial justice crisis, the inequality crisis uh, to this project of rebuilding. They're wrapped up in each other. And if we don't engage them fully now, uh, we will miss the chance of our lives. Kendra, is that conversation about social and racial um, injustice and inequality infused now in the climate conversation? Because for many years, they felt like they were separate. I definitely think it's a bigger part of the climate conversation. And and something I want to piggyback on what Eric said is that this doesn't only have to happen on the federal level. This is also on the state and the local and the regional level. Um like these things that need to get changed, like you can pick where, the levels at where you get engaged and and on those scales in particular. And even within the Biden administration, racial justice is interwoven with this. Economic justice is interwoven with this. These are conversations that the climate movement at large is having. Whether or not it's effective is a broader conversation, but they are definitely raising this issue. Kendra Pierre-Lewis is senior climate reporter for the Gimlet Spotify podcast, How to Save a Planet. And Eric Kleidenberg is author of Palaces for the People, How Social Infrastructure Can Help Fight Inequality, Polarization, and the Decline of Civic Life. Thank you to you both. Thank you. Thank you. This is Sharon Rube. I'm calling from Portland, Oregon. And I'm calling to let you know how the heat has affected us here. A lot of our plants were very droopy. It was very hot. Our air conditioning had to work overtime. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yes, hi, this is Kelly. I'm calling from Newburgh, Oregon. The heat wave impact on us, I think, is more emotional than anything else. I, you know, I had to bring the animals in because I was a little worried about them in the heat. But more than anything, it just made me kind of grumpy. So I've had to be more aware of my interactions with family and others and how the slowly rising heat you don't notice until suddenly you're grumpy. Thank you so much. That's my takeaway. Hi, this is Lori with Bend, Oregon. And what am I concerned about in terms of the heat? Uh, How about water, fires, air quality? Uh, Something we contend with every year, but this year just seems like we're starting off pretty poorly. Thank you. This is Amber calling from Nashua, New Hampshire, and I love the heat. I let all my coworkers know that I'm a perspirer, that I work in a hospital, and all the patients are having a hard time because it's hot, and a lot of the bubblers are turned off because of COVID. I'm Kate from Portland, Oregon, and this heat wave has not just been bad for our health living in the Pacific Northwest, um, but also for our mental health. I know a lot of people are really struggling with thinking about the future and the impact of climate change. And I am definitely not the only one who is going through a mentally dark period, just worried about the future. Hi, the, uh, the heat wave was really pretty bad here on Monday. It was over 115 degrees. And it reminded me when I lived in Arizona because the humidity was just uh, wrung out of the air. So it was really low humidity, uh, but we didn't have any problem. Um, there were no power shortages or blackouts. Things went well. I live in Portland, Oregon. I'm Brian. Brian. Thank you. This is Dunya from Portland, Oregon. I think this weekend really brought about the disparity. Uh, in our populations and especially 
how how few services there are for our houseless community. We really had to rely on nonprofits and volunteers um, and people pulling together to make sure that people had shade, people had uh, water and what they needed in order to survive. Um, we didn't have Red Cross here and it didn't seem like we had a lot of effort from the city itself. So really brought to light once again how we're failing our houseless community. Thank you. In 2018, Bill Cosby, who was then 81, was convicted on three felony counts of aggravated indecent assault and sentenced to serve at least three years and up to 10 years in prison. In May of 2021, Cosby was denied parole, due in part to his refusal to participate in a program for sexually violent offenders. On Wednesday, Bill Cosby was released from prison after the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania overturned his conviction due to a procedural issue. Joining me now is Jamie Floyd, Senior Editor for the Race and Justice Unit at New York Public Radio. Jamie, thank you so much for being here. Hello, Melissa. So how did this happen? Well, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, as you say, sided with Bill Cosby and his attorneys in an argument they've been making throughout both criminal trials he went through and the appeals, which is that a former district attorney in the county where he has a home and where this alleged assault took place, had made a promise to Bill Cosby that he would not be prosecuted if he agreed uh, to participate in some other civil litigation. Because civil litigation is obviously doesn't land you, land you in jail. And Cosby believed that was binding. So after the promise was made, And when Andrea Constant's allegations first came to light, he did go on to give sworn testimony in a civil trial, and he incriminated himself. He said things that were damaging, deeply damaging, uh, in the criminal context. Things um, like he would sometimes give drugs to women that he wanted to have sex with. He claimed that he only shared that information because he never thought he'd be charged in the criminal context. And the justices said, Melissa, that these promises should have been kept. And it's not an acquittal. They're not saying that Bill Cosby is innocent. This is critically important to to say uh, because the victims here are devastated. But it's also not a technicality. You were right to call it a procedural issue. You have a Fifth Amendment right in this country not to incriminate yourself in the criminal context. And it is inviolable. It's one of the ones we hold most dear, right? That's why you get a Miranda warning, all of that kind of thing. And here he spoke against his interest in court. He gave testimony under oath, believing that the prosecutor would honor the promise. And when he did that, it was a violation, the court said, of that Fifth Amendment right. So it's not a a substantive acquittal, but it's more than a technicality. They are sending a signal to prosecutors, Hmm. don't make promises you're not going to keep. I want to just go into that one more step because, you know, (laughs) I'm a survivor. I know not only for survivors, Mm -hmm. but for so many of us, we saw this moment um, and it feels like such an injustice. But I'm also someone 
deeply committed to uh, criminal justice yes. reform and and real criminal justice. And so on the procedural account, if we can if we can take the Bill Cosby out of it, right, right it actually does matter to have that Fifth Amendment right protected. And if a prosecutor makes that promise to have that be binding, it, it would be deeply troubling in the long term for that not to be binding. Right. And and I think this is why talking about the Cosby case matters. It's not because he's a big celebrity, but the reason it matters is for the reasons you just stated. We have victims here who uh, allege horrific things happen to them and the system they feel is failing them. But as you point out, there are so many uh, black and brown men in prison who have intersected with the criminal justice system in ways that have failed them. And so prosecutors cannot make promises to the counsel for criminal defendants and then not honor those promises. And we certainly have to honor uh, the, the Fourth Amendment search and seizure requirements and the Fifth Amendment uh, right to uh, not testify against yourself, a right against self-incrimination. And when prosecutors, again, make promises, they have to keep them. And what happened here, just to be clear, Melissa, is the first prosecutor made the promise. The Bill Cosby case actually predates the Me Too movement, as many people will remember. The movement happens, and then a new prosecutor comes in, and he says, well, I am not going to live by this. In the midst of this movement, we must honor these women and wants to, with, with, with noble intentions, prosecute Bill Cosby. But the court said, no, no, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has to honor its promises to those whom it is prosecuting. Jamie Floyd is the senior editor (laughs) for the Race and Justice Unit at New York Public Radio and is helping us to walk through the differences between law and justice and fairness Mm -hmm. and what feels good and what feels right and what just has to be. and. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Ibram X. Kendi, the host of Be Anti-Racist, a new action podcast I'm launching on June 9th from iHeartMedia and Pushkin Industries. Each week, I'll be joined by a special guest to discuss how different policies and platforms can dismantle racism to build a just and equitable world. Listen to Be Anti-Racist on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. You're listening to The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. Now, we're just a few days from our big national birthday celebration, the 4th of July. And I've been thinking about some of the genuinely amazing rights we enjoy in this country. The right to speak our minds when we want to. The right to remain silent when we need to. The right to a speedy trial and the right to be judged by our peers. But there is a right we don't enjoy, one that we're denied. Hey, wait, Jay, did, did the player break? You see, One of the rights that we are cut off from, shut out of, we do not have the right to repair our broken stuff. Now, if you're anything like me, you didn't even know that you were being denied this right. Like, but straight up, no joke, thank goodness for the reporting team here at The Takeaway, because without their intervention, I would not have even thought about this issue. 
but it turns out it's kind of a big deal. All right, let's say you break your smartphone. Something I might have done once, okay, twice. Well, there's also that time it fell off the balcony. Oh, okay, so like five times. But nearly every time I had to make an appointment with the retailer, wait in line, and either pay for a really costly fix or shell out for a new device. What if it didn't have to be that way? For years, right to repair advocates have been pushing for laws that provide consumers and independent repair shops with access to the information, parts, and tools required to fix products like iPhones and more. Computers, laptops, tablets, PDAs, any kind of home telephone system, home electronics, consumer electronics, TVs, household um, appliances, small appliances, large appliances, tractors, my name is Gay Gordon Byrne. I'm the executive director of the Digital Right to Repair Coalition, much more easily known as Repair.org. Organizations like the Repair Association have been instrumental in getting right to repair legislation introduced at the statewide level. And the movement's finally gaining traction at the national level, too. In June, federal legislation called the Fair Repair Act was introduced in Congress. And getting that passed would be a big step, according to advocates like Gordon Brine. It's actually not so much about self-repair as it is about making sure that anybody that wants to fix something has the opportunity to do it. If you as a consumer want to fix your stuff, you can, but it's much more important that a small business be able to know that they can get the parts and the tools and the service documentation that they need to offer the service. After learning about all of this, I was pretty convinced that right to repair is important, but I wanted to understand more. So I made a call to the first person I could think of. My name is Shalisha Morgan, owner and founder of Geek and Hills Cell Phone and Computer Repair based out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Now, y'all got to understand that after I met Salisha, I started handing over all of my repairs to this Geek in Heels. Here's why. At my business, I charge $49.99 for iPhone 6 repair. If a client were to take their phone to the Apple store, Apple would charge them $129 for that very same repair. This is absurd. Just as consumers have the right to take their cars to any dealership or mechanic to have it repaired, we all should have the very same right to do so with our devices. Post-COVID, families are still scraping to get by. Every single dime counts. I had to turn away a client yesterday who wanted to have their cracked TV screen fixed. Why? I literally could not locate the parts anywhere. Manufacturers are making these devices throwaway devices, causing us, the consumers, to have to go back out and buy them and replace them again. Girl Apple, bye. We've been talking about the right to repair movement in the U.S., and I have Matthew Galt, staff writer at Vice's Motherboard, with me. Good morning, Matthew. Hi, thank you. So much, uh, so wonderful to be here. Can you talk a little bit about why there's been an increased interest and momentum surrounding this? Everyone has a cell phone that's broken, that they couldn't get repaired. Everyone's broken a laptop. And then over the course of the pandemic, I think we all came to rely so heavily on this stuff. So many people working from home, buying new computers. Inevitably, people had things break and then couldn't get them repaired. Um, not only couldn't find a repair shop that would take them, but also found that you know Apple had closed down his Genius Bars and that even if they could get in there and make the repairs themselves, they didn't have the tools and the knowledge wasn't anywhere on the internet. 
you know, this is precisely what happened to me. I, I um, was, you know, trying to set up my, you know, quarantine home office, was moving my desk around and boop, my, you know, desktop fell off the desk. And it was right at the height, right? And all the Apple stores and Genius Bars were closed. And it was like, you know, sort of, where do we go now? What do we do next? So let's talk about that Fair Repair Act, which was recently introduced in Congress. What would this legislation do? This would, uh, it's very similar to other legislation that's passed in, in like Massachusetts around cars, where it makes it so that the manufacturer has to share um, very basic things with anyone else who wants to make a repair. Now, that could be an independent repair shop owner. It could be an individual who wants to make the repair. Um, but they're calling for, like, say, if you break your iPhone, then Apple would have to provide you with the tools um, and the diagnostics and, like, any manuals that it had that would allow you to easily, say, replace the screen on your phone or the case if you shattered it. Um, and it has a provision that allows the FCC to fine companies that are not uh, compliant. And it's really kind of that simple. And does this not run afoul of intellectual property rights? That is one of the big arguments and big pushbacks from companies like Apple. And there is a carve out in the bill that says anything that involves trade secrets does not have to be shared. But I think you start getting into this tricky situation here where Smarter people than me have already figured out how to go in and open up an iPhone and repair it and could replace a screen with an aftermarket screen that's much cheaper than Apple would charge through its Genius Bar or another one of its authorized repair techs, right? The problem comes, um, you know, and this has actually happened, where people have gotten their screens replaced with aftermarket screens that were much cheaper. And then a few months down the line, Apple pushes in a software update, and then suddenly the touch function on those screens doesn't work. These right to repair laws are meant to prevent companies from like Apple from stopping people from just getting their stuff repaired, frankly, wherever they want to or doing the repairs themselves. So these days, I can no longer tell what what is going to be a partisan issue, right? Things that I wouldn't expect to be partisan turn out to be. So what about the right to repair? Is this bipartisan in nature? Or has this become ideological in any way? It really hasn't become ideological in any way. Uh, obviously, you have lobbyists on Apple and John Deere. Uh, you know, we can get into farm equipment later who are, are pushing against this. But this is one of those things where everybody has an iPhone. Everyone's got a computer or laptop or knows someone that has been affected by this. Everyone has busted uh, a phone and taken it in to get repaired to the manufacturer, and they're going to charge them $400 or just ask them to replace the phone right? When in reality, if they still had one of those little mom and pop shops that could do the repair, they could get it replaced, you know, for 50 bucks and be go on about their day. And because of the ubiquity of our technology, I think everyone, when you explain it to them, when they, you know, they really get it, it makes sense. We've all broken a phone, but we haven't all broken a combine. Can we go back to the farm uh, equipment issue? What's going on with farm equipment? So this one, I think is, is another one of the one other one of the reasons that this is so bipartisan uh, and people really understand it is because this is affecting farmers. You know, for hundreds of years, farmers have used tractors and they've generally repaired their own equipment or they've had someone in their community that does all the repairs, right? And it's been the system has worked fine. Well, as technology has advanced, companies like John Deere, John Deere is kind of one of the the big drivers of this, have added onboard computers and GPS systems and all this fancy tech to the tractors. And the way they work now 
is if something goes wrong in the computer system of the tractor, you know, it'll start throwing an error code. And an authorized John Deere tech has to come out there and clear that error code before any repairs can be made on the vehicle. Even if it's a repair that the farmer knows how to do, if they don't have the specialized piece of equipment that allows them to clear that error code, they can't fix the the, the combine or the tractor. Um, and this has led to this really bizarre aftermarket where you've got farmers trying to buy uh, tractors that were manufactured before the onboard electronics started being put on them because they know they can pay, they'll pay double what it cost in the 1970s to get one, but then they know it's going to run for another 50 years and they aren't going to have to jack with all the computer stuff. Right, because what we should be doing is definitely making life harder for farmers. Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, so I, I get I get now on this sense. Now, what else? So we've got, we've got phones, we've got combines and tractors. Let me just say, I recently threw away what felt to me like a completely brand new vacuum because it ceased working. And I was just sort of recalling, growing up as a kid, there was a vacuum repair place in our community. There doesn't seem to be one now. Is it all of these other small electronics as well? Yeah, it is. All of it's all these things have computer systems in them now that make it hard for people to access without a little bit of knowledge of how the electronic systems work. Um, the big one for me, and again, another reason I think that this blew up so big during the pandemic is medical equipment. So there were ventilators during the pandemic that needed that needed repairs. There weren't enough ventilators to go around. There certainly weren't enough repair techs to go around. And the ventilator manufacturers, they wanted authorized repair techs to do the fixes on these machines. And the hospitals, you know, these simple fixes that they could have done, they, you know, they kind of had to put them by the wayside. Um, and it's not just ventilators. Um, there's some great testimony out of Colorado where they're trying to get similar, similar legislation passed. You had people that had uh, medical devices they were using to for mobility or to survive, sharing their stories about living in rural parts of Colorado. Um, one gentleman had a wheelchair that had ceased functioning, and he had someone in his local area that could make the fix, but the people who provided him the wheelchair said, no, we need to send out our repair tech to do it, or you'll void your warranty and we'll never work on the chair again. And he ended up waiting four weeks before someone could come out and see his 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 chair. And there were several stories like that. Matthew Galt is a staff writer at Vice's Motherboard. And I think he might have just turned me into like the Paul Revere of, of the right to repair. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry in for Tanzina Vega. And if you receive this invitation from someone you only met a day ago. Hey. Last month, I went dancing at this cute spot in Florida where my roommate's girl made like five Gs a night. My roommate just told me that he going out there tomorrow and he asked me if I had any friends that want to make some money and you the first I thought of. Well, you should probably go ahead and say thanks, but no thanks. That's at least one of the conclusions readers were able to draw from the uber viral 2015 Twitter thread by Asia King, who goes by Zola. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with that thread, let's just say the trip to Florida did not go as planned. And the roommate you heard mentioned in that clip was actually a pimp who tried to force Zola to engage in sex work. 
Now, this week, a movie adaptation of the Twitter thread entitled Zola is out in theaters, directed by Janixa Bravo and starring Taylor Page as Zola. This movie captures the original thread in all its absurdity and horror. One of the film's biggest surprises is character actor Coleman Domingo as the so-called roommate. Now, now you might know Domingo and his typically warm presence from movies including If Beale Street Could Talk and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. But in this role, he's capturing something much more sinister. I think that I've been in the canon of very sort of loving Black fathers and men and advisors, you name it. And I think this is going to be a real swing for people to see me in this role. What did you think? Am I terrifying you? (laughs) And, And to be honest, even though he's kind of ridiculously charming in real life, after watching the movie, I was kind of terrified to talk with him. I spoke with Domingo about why he took Bravo up on her offer to play this intimidating role. It's fun, but it's also an incredible challenge. What I thought was, to be very honest, even when uh, Janixa asked me to play that role, I just thought, well, what has she seen that would even remotely make her think of me for this role? And uh, I guess, you know, I think that she she knows that I'm a character actor um, through and through, but also that I wanted to humanize this character. So I think that was a huge challenge, like to humanize a character that you know does awful, degrading uh, things, to, especially to women. And I, I don't know, to find something about him that's charming, that is loving, and I, I don't know. So I thought that was a great challenge for me. So there was a, anything like that is a fun challenge where I'm like, okay, I have to go into the heart of some darkness, but also find out what makes them tick and what makes them human. And so that's what I thought the undertaking was. So I don't know. I wanted to find out what was his dreams, what did he want? I Once I found out he was also Nigerian, I was like, oh, okay, I can look at it from the point of view as an immigrant story. And maybe this is what he has to have agency in the world. And he wants what everyone else wants. This is just his access point. He has no other way of attaining the American dream, but he wants it like everyone else. So that that's the only way to make him human. And um, because otherwise, if I judged him from the outside or as he is in the story or as pretty much he was as a human being, I would think uh, not the best things about him. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can see your point about the access into his humanity through the immigrant story, because it's the moment when he asks everyone to say his name and um, and and ensures that his name is said and is said well and is said right. And I thought, ah, you, you helped uh, me to see what's in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think he wanted. You know, he wants to be acknowledged. He wants. He wants what everyone else wants. And he's like, I, I, I'm sure he said, I've told you my name before, again and again, and no one can ever say it. Think about that. I know that I'm always very particular about how people. People always put an E in my name. And I'm just like, you know, that's not my name. And that's, you know, not to sound like, you know, Tina Turner, where you're like, all I have is my name. You know? <laughs> but it is true. And in fact, I, um, my, you know, the producers may be laughing as they, as they listen along because um, it, is, it is both one of the greatest challenges that I have as um, a, a monolinguistic speaker who only speaks English, but also um, wants to have, you know, diversity in our show. And I'm always like, I will go to bed repeating the names of my guests, trying to be sure I get them right and will still get them wrong because, you know, the American tongue is fat and lazy and um, and a little bit pitiful on these things. 
<laughs> you said it. That's the truth. <laughs> well, well, it's like we don't usually have to think about it. You know, I mean, we're dealing with Bobs and Michaels and Johns. We don't have to really deal with, you know, it, it, like and I, I personally, when I went to Amsterdam for the first time, I was so confused just even looking at, you know, names of streets. I was like, OK, because we don't usually have that in our language, you know, so I get it. <laughs> I'm a lazy American too. <laughs> so talk to me about, because one of the places that can be most lazy is Hollywood, particularly mm-hmm. in its representation of black folk. So talk yeah. to me about what you are looking for in a script, in a, in a character. Oh, well, what a wonderful question. I think I'm always just looking at complexity. I wanted to look at a character that is, um, that is flawed. Um, they don't have to be um, just and good people. I think that people are very complex. And I think one minute they say one thing and then they mean another. I, I'm, I'm looking for complexity, especially when it comes to uh, the a canon of African-American men that I, I played or will play. Um, I never want to do this sort of the easy version of it. You, you can see that pretty quickly in a script. And um, the blessing is I've been on this show, Fear the Walking Dead, for seven seasons now. And my showrunners really listen to me because they know that I'm just really trying to look at the complexities of a character and for him to never be monolithic, uh, for him to be daring and to not just be, uh, I don't know, a a morally genuine, loving, kind person. I'm like, there's all shades of gray. And don't be afraid of that because I'm African-American, but lean, lean into the complexities of a man. So I'm always just looking for that with any script, to be honest. With any script that I look for, I look for something that'll scare me, to be honest. Um, something mm-hmm. that I have not played before. Something that I think will change me, will also move me and uh, help me see someone else's point of view. That's what's interesting to me. Um, instead of sort of like a rehashing, you can see it pretty quickly when you see a rehashing of something that they want. For a minute, I honestly thought that people were trying to turn me into, not to say anything against this this wonderful, wonderful legendary actor, but, you know, sort of that voice of God, that Morgan Freeman. People get obsessed with that. You have mm-hmm. a great voice, Coleman. You're a soothing presence. You're, in a way, sometimes I feel like non-threatening. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that, I, and so I sort of push against that and sort of make... Uh, choices to make sure that they're a very complex human being, you know? Well, Zola will help with you being <laughs> non-threatening. I, I think that, <laughs> that will assist. It's a good gentle assist. I think that's great. You know, I think, I mean, I, mean, I think, it's like, you know, I think, I mean, I think especially like, I mean, I think a character like X, I think in the hands of another actor sometimes could have just been set up as a trope. He could just, you know, you can just get obsessed with being the villain and playing all the dark notes of this character and not humanizing him. And I thought that that's, you know, I've, I've seen those tropes of, you know, pimps and thugs and hood hood dudes who are just trying to get by and make some money and do terrible things. But but I thought like, oh, there's more there's more notes to that. And I think that will shine a light on who we are as human beings and make sure that we're more um, we can see each other. I can see something of myself in X. And I think any brother who thinks, oh, I have nothing to do with this guy, you can see that he has wants and needs like anybody else. Can you say a little bit more? I was intrigued when you said, my showrunners listen to me. Last week, we had a conversation about um, Hollywood and about writers' rooms and about how um, frequently folks are actually not listened to, are ignored, or are um, you know, just put into a single category. 
you know, you've been on the show for a while. Did that listening happen over time or is that kind of the culture of that space? You know what? I think our showrunners, I think I've been very blessed with, it started out with Dave Erickson, who really wrote to my strengths. He created this character. Specifically, I don't think that he was meant for an African-American actor. Um, he, he seemed like he was straight out of Shakespeare. He was like Richard III, and I love language. And I just sort of like came in with that love and passion for it. And then he wrote towards me in many ways. I think a good, smart showrunner will see, um, will get to know their cast and see where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are and sort of write towards or challenge those things. And so in every single way, in shape and form, I wanted to make sure that they knew that, yes, Victor Strand is a character that may not specifically have been written as a Black man, but I am a Black man. And his Blackness will have to be a part of it in some way. I know that, to be very honest, I know even like in season six, my wardrobe uh, supervisors start to notice that my character, I was sort of like bring his hat to the side just a little bit at times. <laughs> I said, well, that's the way he wears his hat. It's not just straight up on his head. I said, he's making a statement about his identity. So he cocks it a little to his side. His roots are from the East Coast and from, you know, urban America. And I'm like, we need to see some of that sometimes. And they're not afraid of it, which is great. I think for us, I'm sure they don't lean into it in the beginning, but I sort of have to do my work and sort of like be a collaborator in that way. And I think as long as we are, there's a forum where you can, um, you know, speak your truth and question the process. And my showrunners have been very open. I mean, you know, I, they hand me the pen at times. Say, what do you think it is? I say, well, I think he has to say this. And it has to be about that. And they listen and they, they incorporate my notes and thoughts. And I think that's what my responsibility is as an actor as well. That you, I come from the theater. So that means you just, you give over everything. I don't need writing credit. I don't need any sort of credits. I'm like, what it is, we're trying to create the, we're trying to make the sausage together. You know what I mean? And we need everyone's hands on deck. So I, I've been listened to, which is great. But also I think I think I know how I think I even teach this. I, I know how to um raise a question or collaborate without it feeling like uh, like I'm imposing. I feel like they know that I'm coming from a place of love and generosity and I'm just trying to make it the best that it can be. And they hear it as such, you know. The people who don't hear it. I think have some ego issues and luckily I haven't had that on my set, you know? It is, um, it is one of my favorite things about being in any aspect of media is that collaborative um, production, right? That uh, you talk yeah. about theater there and there's that sense, okay, the, the audience sees the actors on stage or maybe on screen, but there's so, that's the tip of the iceberg, right? Most of it is actually happening beyond the purview of the audience. Absolutely. It's all happening in the purview of the audience. I think that's where I find, that's where I have my most joy, to be honest, is when we're creating the thing before anyone else sees it. And we're wrestling with language, we're wrestling with character, every costume detail. You're giving up, you you give over everything to it uh, without wanting credit for it. Because you're like, I just want to, I don't, it doesn't matter to me who, who came up with that moment or that idea. It is just, you, 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 you absorb it all. And, and, and then you perform it. And I think it's a beautiful thing. Now, you have another film that is um, on the horizon that, again, might help with this non-threatening situation. Uh, you're starring in the upcoming Candyman movie. Can you talk to me a little bit about this? I can. I can. A, a recent uh, trailer just came out. And I think it's phenomenal because it really centers on the story 
of Candyman. And I, you can tell with my voiceover that it, my character sort of, um, I don't know, he's sort of like, you know, holding up the story and the legend of Candyman. So my character was written for me by Jordan Peele. And he wanted to, me to be this neighborhood guy who sort of, I think who holds the trauma of the neighborhood in, in some way. I think he's just raising questions of like, you know, of gentrification, of people coming in and not understanding all, all the things that have went down in the neighborhood. And basically sort of, sort of saying, you know, you can come, I know you, this, this location is um, sexy and wonderful and you want it now, but you can't just have the location without having the trauma as well, that that's important um, for gentrification. I think that's what he's saying. So I think that's saying something without saying everything, but I think that that's um, sort of the uh, the impulse of my character. I find Jordan Peele's mind, at least as it's presented um, through his films, to be brilliant and completely terrifying. Um, and yeah. I'm I'm wondering about um, you've had this opportunity to work with really eclectic black directors, some of the best in the business. Uh, tell me a little bit about what those collaborations have been like for you. You know what they are? They are really, I'm just thinking, the moment you said that, I thought of Janixa Bravo, Nia DaCosta, uh, you know, these people who are saying, Coleman, we want what you bring and we want you to help challenge this as well. And they're not afraid of my mind as well. Because when I, when I come on to any project, people know that you're going to get a dramaturg, you're going to get a full collaborator. I'm not just going to hit my marks and just say the lines, but I'm going to help question and wrestle with this to make it the best that it can be. I'm going to use every skill that I have because that's what um, I've always believed that's what was required. So I think, I don't know, it feels like you can make some magic and you feel like you can challenge the way we're represented on film. That, that's what I think. I, I get that with, you know, even like, you know, with more senior directors like George C. Wolf. George is, mm -hmm. George is the director who's been doing this for so many years. But when I tell you, he gets down on the floor and he's sort of playing with clay and he's... Um, He's, he's always willing to challenge and wrestle and really, um, I don't know, elevate, uh, and, but also not, not, not be afraid to be guttural with our experience as mm -hmm. well, that we are all things, that we are not just one, but we are, you, we're not just Cosby's and we're not just good times, but mm -hmm. we're, we're all of it in between, <laughs> you know? When I think of us being all things, um, I just want to return to this really lovely GQ profile um, from Aww. earlier in the year, uh, detailing how you fell in love with your husband and how you first Aww. saw each other at a, a Walgreens and then, you know, found each <laughs> other through the Craigslist missed connections posters. Like, right? this is not normally how this goes down. No. Um, <laughs> so I want to know, is this going to be a film? Are we going to get to watch this someday you know on, on the screen? The funny thing is, is when after we had this chance meeting 17 years ago, I actually wrote about it. I wrote a short story about it and it was called something like two birds, one with green eyes, one with open hands, because there were some significant things that happened on our first date. And I, I thought of him as a bird and, uh, mm. and <laughs> a bird with open hands, because when he sat down, I noticed that he didn't sit with his hands on his, his palms down. He sat with his palms up. And it was the first time I've ever seen anybody do that. And I thought, look at that. That's a real open human being. He's so open to the world. 
I don't know if it'll be. It's, it's a revolutionary it's, position, palms up, because it means it, you can't be typing on a on a you know on a keyboard. Um, yeah. You can't be you know laboring in a particular way. It's a very it's a very yogic position. I think so, and it's something that I was so taken with him, and he really. I mean, I think that we've. Um, I mean, honestly, the way we met truly was magic. I do believe that the divine resides. I believe there's magic, and you just have to look for it. And I know that that's how I got the love of my life. Um, we met, like I said, it was a chance meeting and then a follow-up on a Craigslist misconnections when I wasn't, <laughs> neither, he placed the ad and two hours later I found it, but I was looking for a used computer. And then I just went to that. <laughs> yeah. And then I just, and then, I, and then I just went to that profile, that site, because I thought, oh, I wonder, I can't stop thinking about this interaction. And then he posted an ad for me. And then we met up two days later. I told him I loved him that night. And we've been together for 17 years now. And so that's the thing that I know when people are like, did that really happen? I'm like, yeah, it did. But I do believe I am one of those people that believe in magic. I really do. I believe that there's love. Love is available. You just have to have your eyes open. You have, you can't be on a, a computer screen. You got to be out with your heart open. And that's the only way it happens. That's what I think. Your heart open and maybe your hands open as well. Thank you for yeah. that beautiful story. Mm, you're welcome, Melissa. <laughs> Coleman Domingo is one of the stars of Zola, and you have not seen him like this before. It's in theaters this week. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. This was wonderful. Thank you. Okay, that's the show, y'all. It's not quite the weekend, so be sure to tune back in tomorrow for more with me. And of course, call us with your show ideas and suggestions. 877-8-MY-TAKE. That's 877-869-8253. Or send us a tweet at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry in for Tanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway. the newsletter so you never miss an update. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, home of the Name Your Price tool. You say how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote. Just visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. All right, are you ready for in-person ranked choice voting results? Take two. Ready or not, here they come. 
You all probably know that the New York City Board of Elections tried on Tuesday to release the interim results for mayor from pretty much everything but the absentee ballots, but they accidentally included the votes on around 135,000 sample ballots that were only supposed to be used to test the system beforehand. Major oops. So yesterday they took the sample ballots out and released what should be the real numbers, and the headline is, it came out mostly the same for the part that really matters. With second-choice votes and below, all factored in for voters whose first-choice candidate was eliminated, Catherine Garcia has almost caught up to Eric Adams. Out of around 800,000 in-person votes cast, Adams leads by only around 15,000. Another way to put that is he leads by two percentage points, 51 to 49. There are about 130,000 absentee ballots, which will get counted next, so it could still go either way. But here's an important difference between the real results and the sample ballot ones. It could still be Maya Wiley and not Catherine Garcia who makes it to that final round calculation versus Eric Adams because Garcia barely beat Wiley for second place, and the absentee ballots could still change that. So there is definitely some ranked choice voting math to explain this morning. If we are smarter than a fifth grader, we can do it. And there is also the question of what to do about Board of Elections incompetence. People who've gone to grad school haven't been able to figure that one out yet. So with me for this is WNYC senior political reporter Bridget Bergen, who I will say is smarter than a PhD when it comes to this stuff. (laughs) Good morning, Bridget. Here we go again. Good morning, Brian. Let's do it. Let's walk step by step through some of this math. First, assuming it is Adams and Garcia in the final round, Let's go over the basics of that one more time. How close is it between them now with how many votes left to count? So as you said, it is narrowed to about two uh, percentage points between Adams and Garcia, and that translates to just under 15,000 votes. Uh, And we know that there are about 125,000 absentee ballots that have been returned and additional affidavit ballots. Now, Not all those ballots will count, but a substantial number of them will because of some reforms to election law passed by the legislature last year that created what's called a cure process so that ballots in previous elections that might have gotten kicked out for technical reasons, well, they will likely be corrected and counted in this uh, tally. So, you know, there's a a substantial number of votes that could influence uh, how this ranked tally looks when we do it again uh, next week. (laughs) On primary night, with only the first choice votes counted among the in-person voters, Adams had around a 12-point lead over Garcia, 32% to 20%. Now it's only a two-point lead. How exactly did ranked choice voting catch Garcia up that much? So the process for ranked choice voting, and, you know, I, I say, I preface this by stressing This ranked tally that we saw this week, as you said, Brian, is just based on in-person votes cast during early voting and on primary day. And, you know, it is a non-binding, unofficial snapshot of where the race stands. Um, And one of the things when we look at some of the the tallies that show us how the different rounds of counting uh, took place the word eliminated gets used. Um, And that's, uh, I think, 
should be considered for the purposes of understanding where we are right now, um, a technical term, but not necessarily the most accurate way to describe the standing of things, because candidates who are technically eliminated right, eliminated right now, well, you know, they're only eliminated in this preliminary tally. But that being said, they used ranked choice voting uh, and the the tabulator that uh, the City Board of Elections um, is using to do the tallies for nine rounds of counting that, quote unquote, eliminated candidates that were the least performing and then redistributed their second through fifth choice votes to candidates that were uh, performing better than they were. And what we saw is up until some of those final rounds, um, just before uh, Catherine uh, Garcia came in second place and edged out Maya Wiley. Uh, the candidate before them to be eliminated was Andrew Yang. And when his votes were redistributed, it gave Garcia the lead to eclipse Wiley by this incredibly narrow margin of less than 350 votes. And that's also what helped uh, Garcia catch up to Adams actually to help Garcia and Wiley catch up to Adams and why the race is now so, so tight. Right. And maybe we should remind people in mathematical terms of the object of the game. Nobody wins until they get past 50 percent of the votes. Adams got the most first place votes with 32 percent among the in-person voters, 32 percent. But that is not the ball game. You have to get to 50. And under ranked choice voting, as you were just describing, the last place person gets, quote, eliminated, and their voter's second choice candidate then gets those votes. And that keeps happening until someone makes it past that 50% threshold. It's the whole point of ranked choice voting. If our first choice candidate loses, we still get a say in who ultimately wins if nobody won a clear majority right away. So back to how Garcia caught up. Bridget, <laughs> You were just starting to get at this, but let's go even a little deeper. Would it be accurate to say that so many people who voted for Maya Wiley first or voted for Andrew Yang first listed Garcia second? Fewer of those Wiley or Yang voters listed Eric Adams as their second choice. So as Wiley and Yang got mathematically eliminated in this model among the in-person voters, Garcia greatly benefited from those second choices, and that's why we are where we are. Yeah, we definitely see that Garcia picked up more votes uh, in that elimination round uh, than Maya Wiley, and that's part of what enabled her to pull ahead. Um, and, you know, as we know, one of the, the defining features of the end of this campaign was that site of Andrew Yang and Catherine Garcia out campaigning together with Andrew Yang making it very clear that he was giving an explicit endorsement to Garcia, saying that anyone that was ranking him first on their ballot should have her on their ballot and presumably have her second. And Garcia was not you know, offering the same full-throated endorsement. She was uh, out there on the campaign trail supporting ranked choice voting. And if we look at these results, uh, it, it would suggest that this uh, was a strategy that benefited her. And, you know, really, she was the only candidate who throughout the race was talking more about, you know, wanting to be, you know, people's choice. She she pushed back against the notion of being uh, 
people's second place choice until that final stretch. Uh, and, and this may have been the thing that helped you know, push her over the edge. Again, you know, I, I, I have had so many conversations with people this week, um, some people deeply frustrated by the fact that the board even released these results to begin with, because the only thing that we know for certain as at this point as the, is that they will change again next Tuesday when we tally the results one more time with another 125,000 votes in the mix. Um, so, you know, so, all of this analysis comes with the caution that, you know, this is a, a moving target. Right. But nevertheless, they are interim results of what is known so far yep. of about 85 percent of the votes. So it indicates what the parameters are mm-hmm. for what remains to be counted. So listeners, if you have any questions about the mayoral election as it stands for Bridget Bergen, 646-435-7280, 646-435-7280, or about the Board of Elections dysfunction, which we'll get to, you can call in or tweet at Brian Lehrer. All right, Bridget, so that had some math to it, everything we've done so far, but was fairly comprehensible, I think. Now we get to the tricky part. It might be Maya Wiley and not Catherine Garcia, who gets to that final round against Adams. What's the math behind that? Well, as we've been talking about, you've got those 125,000 absentee ballots. And depending on where those ballots are coming from and who those voters supported, you know, we could see these uh, tallies shift again. It's such a, such a narrow margin uh, with less than 350 votes between uh, Catherine Garcia and Maya Wiley. The other part of this, the sort of part we want to say quietly so that, you know, perhaps we finish this election at some point, yeah. uh, is the wild card of potential legal challenges. Um, and one of the things that we know so far is that both the campaigns for Eric Adams and Catherine Garcia filed uh, pre- preliminary lawsuits that preserve their right to challenge the counting. Uh, There is a deadline to do that initial step of tomorrow. Uh, And so they have made clear that they will be watching this counting very closely. And if, you know, there is, if it comes to the point where they, you know, are objecting to votes from a certain, for for a certain reason, um, they have the ability to do that. Uh, when I reached out to Maya Wiley's campaign with the same question, were they planning to file that? Um, they didn't have a comment for me at the time. Uh, we know that she is actually doing her first uh, press avail since the uh, since last week, uh, later this morning, and uh, Gothamist and WNYC will be there to hear what her take is on these preliminary results. But in some um, nightmare scenario, uh, there is the chance that there could be objections uh, that would require manual recounts of certain numbers of these ballots. Um, we saw that certainly during last summer's primary election when the results weren't certified until sometime in August. Uh, but, you know, we're not at that point yet, Brian. Uh, but that is uh, among the possibilities Uh, That could change the outcome and uh, make for a very long summer. Yeah. So with ranked choice voting, does any degree of closeness in the final result trigger an automatic recount? 
And would anything make the Board of Elections have to do all that by hand, which could be a galaxy-sized nightmare? Oh, that, that is just such a, such a thought to behold, Brian. Um, <laughs> I was uh, actually just emailing and going back and forth with uh, election law attorney Jerry Goldfeder before I came on this morning, um, who has drafted a letter and is of the opinion that the board does need to consider the way they would trigger a manual recount in this ranked choice voting process. Normally, if the margin between the final candidates is less than half of 1%, that is what would trigger the full manual recount. As you, I'm sure, remember, we saw that not too long ago in the Queen's district attorney primary. Um, Jerry Goldfeder was also a part of that process, uh, representing Tiffany Caban. You know, he but not ranked choice voting. But not ranked choice. But so his argument, though, which is an interesting one, is that if you are uh, eliminating candidates uh, where there is a margin that is that close, that potentially should there be a manual recount triggered at an earlier round to ensure that someone is not being eliminated uh, prematurely who shouldn't be. Um, Right. So that's where it could come into play between Wiley and Garcia for who finishes second before they go on to the final ranked choice round against Eric Adams. So what did Goldfeder say about that? Would there be a recount between Wiley and Garcia for second place if it stays this close? Well, Jerry, if you're listening, I look forward to talking to you later since we've been emailing about it. But uh, my understanding of his position is that um, he thinks the board does need to consider instituting manual recounts earlier in the ranked elimination process. Uh, And so that could mean potentially having manual recounts before we get to the, you know, the final rounds that, you know, at an earlier elimination round, if that margin is very close that there should be more of a manual recount. So you could, if you sort of play that out, you could imagine how that could take um, quite a bit of time. We'll have the uh, Labor Day ranked choice voting results party, maybe, in that scenario. Mitchell in the Bronx, you're on WNYC with our senior political reporter, Bridget Bergen. Hi, Mitchell. Hi, Brian. I would just like to actually uh, respond and say that I've noticed that the coverage for Meyer isn't actually being given the same amount as uh, Ms. Garcia. And that really the, the three people that are actually in this tally, besides the uh, five that dropped out, really it should be, uh, the coverage should be stating that Maya is really in second place as, as close to Garcia as anyone. Right. Well, she's not in second place. She's in third well, place. But I, but I agree with your larger point, and I think we're, we're doing that here. We're explaining just how close they are and that Maya Wiley, in fact, might wind up as the second place candidate before the final round. All right. Thank you very much. I guess uh, maybe that was a satisfying answer to him because he didn't say anything. Um, and really, this, this part, to linger on that for a second— because Mitchell is right about mm-hmm. Wiley being so close that it should be, you know, the headlines, instead of saying Adams and Garcia, it should say Adams and Garcia or Wiley. Yeah, I mean, I think that is why some people really have raised objections about whether or not the board should have been, or how the board should have been releasing these interim tallies, uh, which, you know, as, we, as we've been saying, are these 
snapshots in time, um, but you know, you could argue even the snapshot is uh, out of focus because you don't have the full pool of eligible ballots to do the ranking. Um, you know, there was a debate among the elections officials about when and what they would release. Um, one of the things, you know, this is the first citywide race with ranked choice voting, but we did have three special elections, two of which went through uh, ranked choice voting. And you know, even candidates in those races criticized the fact that the ranked choice process didn't start until all of the eligible ballots were in. And that that piece of it has nothing to do with ranked choice voting. That has to do with reforms made to our election law to ensure that all eligible absentee ballots are counted. But the in that in those particular instances and in those special elections, they did a manual ranked choice voting tally, and that was because the State Board of Elections was still testing and certifying the software that we used for this ranked choice tally. Um, but they, they, the board was criticized for not do, not releasing additional information sooner. Uh, there were others who thought that the board should have been releasing what's called the cast vote record as soon as, you know, potentially the Friday after the primary so that other organizations, media outlets, campaigns could take, you know, the 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 election results as they stood at that point in time. So in this case, the in-person results and run them through the tabulator themselves and, you know, check the math, basically, of the Board of Elections. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unfortunately, if if what they had released this week um, contained the error that was uncovered and forced them to retract that initial round of results, um, I don't know if, if anyone else would have caught it sooner. Uh, so this is a new process, and I think there's a lot of figuring out about what is the best way to do something on this scale. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about those absentee ballots. Around 100, you said 125,000 voters, or around 14% of the total vote. Those are big enough, big enough numbers to make a difference in a close race. And I saw that they already announced what boroughs and what election districts the absentee ballots came from. And we know who won among the in-person voters in each district, I believe. So can we predict fairly well who the absentee votes will benefit and by how much? I think that there are certainly people who, uh, uh, campaign strategists and others and, you know, political analysts that will be looking at where those absentee ballots came from to try to to try to theorize what that means for particular candidates, I think that's part the re- part of the reason why when we see that more of them are from Manhattan, um, people are theorizing that that could be beneficial to Garcia. Um, but again, these are we we don't know, and we will, but we will know soon uh, because we will see an updated round of these results. Uh, you know, at some point on the day of July 6th. Um, We don't know what time on that day. That has been a source of pain and frustration for those of us waiting for results. Uh, But at some point on on July 6th, we should know another tally that does include some of those absentee ballot, uh, the absentee ballots that have been processed so far. We don't know what time, 
on July 6th. So you're telling me, I don't know if I should book you for the show for the morning of July 6th or wait till the morning of July 7th. Um, it <laughs> I might think July 7th is probably a good it idea. It might have to be both. <laughs> Peter in Manhattan, you're on WNYC with Bridget Bergen. Hi, Peter. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so what I was wondering is if the 120, you know, it's not going to come this way, but if it were, if the 125,000 split exactly the way the Manhattan uh, uh, vote split, would that be enough for Catherine Garcia to surpass Eric Adams? That's an excellent question, Peter, and I haven't done the math to be able to give you uh, a fair answer on that. I'm, I'm pulling up the tallies now to see if I can eyeball it. Um, but I think that one of the things that we, we do know is that um, that Catherine Garcia did extremely well in Manhattan. Um, and if the bulk of those absentee ballots do go to her, um, then we're going to have an extremely close race on our hands and that she does stand to potentially pull ahead of Adams. Right. But I know some basic absentee ballot numbers by borough that I've seen. There are about 40,000 from Manhattan. Yep. There are about 35,000 from Brooklyn. There are about 32,000 from Queens. There are about 13,000 from the Bronx and about 7,000 from Staten Island. So what does this mean? Well, if Manhattan is Garcia country mm-hmm. and there are about 30, uh, 40,000 absentee ballots from there, but Brooklyn and the Bronx were so heavily Adams country, yep. well... 35% plus 13%, that's 48%. That's almost half the absentee ballots come from Brooklyn and the Bronx combined compared to about 40% from Manhattan. Um, I think Queens uh, also, we should say, is probably Adams country mm-hmm. because the turnout in Southeast Queens, which he won by a lot, was so big. So my initial guess is that the absentee ballot should benefit Eric Adams, but of course we don't know. Yeah, and I think to to really answer that, you have to go a little deeper and see where in the boroughs right. those absentee ballots came from, because that will tell you also more about who is submitting those ballots. Um, and that's, that's the kind of digging we're going to continue to do. But um, that is, again, you know, I... I, I sound a little bit like a broken record, but I think that is why um, people are taking these this current tally with a grain of salt, knowing that there is this real X factor of an infusion of votes, you know, that deserve and, and should be counted that could change the results. Um, and just because those results change doesn't mean like it, it Nothing is wrong with that. It just means that we're continuing the counting process. Right. And I think we saw in the presidential election, for which we know the absentee ballot totals by now, um, the absentee voters tended to be older and whiter. Well, older benefits Adams in general, certainly compared to Wiley, and, and, and whiter benefits Garcia. Um, so those two may cancel each other out. We don't know, but those are some of the some of the trends. I, I also saw a stat, Bridget, that people would find interesting. I think um, that that shows how much absentee 
balloting exploded this year compared to the last mayoral election or mayoral primary, um, which I think was about 25,000 absentee ballots pre-COVID. Now, 125,000 absentee ballots. So that's a lot more people voting absentee. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is, we are definitely seeing uh, the impact of this you know, post-pandemic election time um, where there were changes made to expand access to absentee ballots during the pandemic and a a realization among people that perhaps um, this change was one that should, we should make getting absentee ballots easier. Um, And so we currently, our law does allow for people to have easier access to absentee ballots. And there is also legislation that has been passed, though not signed yet by the governor, that could speed up the counting process for these absentee ballots. Um, and that, I think, probably would help people help people better understand which part of this process is um, is delayed because of the the rule state laws around absentee ballot counting versus what is a a ranked choice voting implication um and that you know clearly will not have any impact on this current election but uh potentially you know is is a sign of hope for the future about how at least this piece of the process could be a little bit faster all right on to the board of elections debacle in mm. our remaining minutes mm-hmm. first Do you see any reason to believe the new version of the count is inaccurate in any way? There are those, including Donald Trump, who would like people to disbelieve anything that comes out now. I think that the board, you know, they put out their statement acknowledging that they had made this error, that it was an egregious mistake, apologizing. I think at this point um, that they you know, have made certain that the numbers that they're releasing are accurate. Um, And, you know, the fact that they did catch this mistake during what is this interim period when we are just releasing unofficial results um, actually is a sign that we, this is a slightly hopeful sign. It's not at the end of the process. It's sowing tremendous confusion and definitely, um, builds on a series of missteps from this agency over a period of time, which you and I have talked a lot about. Um, But I think the fact that they caught this and that they acknowledged it, that they corrected it, and that we have new numbers to work with, um, at least that much is a good thing. Uh, But there are bigger problems here. There are, you know, structural issues with this agency. And one of the bigger challenges is, you know, we have these types of conversations after elections, uh, unfortunately, far too often. And there's a lot of energy and, you know, seeming momentum towards making some changes until you get to the point of actually, you know, doing what needs to be done to reimagine this agency. Um, And, you know, there is legislation that has been proposed by uh, State Senator Liz Kruger and Assemblymember uh, Neely Rozek that would 
do some make some changes that could help professionalize the agency, uh, really delineating the powers between uh, what the commissioners are deciding versus what a new co-executive director structure would decide and who gets to appoint those executive directors and the accountability there. Also ensuring that these people who are working at the agency are required to be trained in election administration. Um, You know, we often talk about this being uh, something of a patronage mill where a lot of people are able to get positions because of their political connections, the role of the county party leaders slash party bosses in picking uh, commissioners who then, in theory, could be disproved. have to go through approval from the city council, but um, it it feels uh, like a pretty de facto uh, approval. So ultimately, to really overhaul the agency, you would have to get into reform of the state constitution. And, you know, we had an opportunity to do reform through a constitutional convention in 2017. A lot of the same people who are supporting um, and are advocates of ranked choice voting are people who were concerned about the constitutional convention because of, you know, the views that that process could get overtaken by people who would, you know, try to take away Uh, workers' rights and other protections for the environment that currently exist in the state constitution. But the flip side of that is that's an opportunity, that was a path that is now closed for a certain number of years. And then the other way to change the constitution is through the the legislature, but that requires passage through two legislative sessions and then a voter referendum. And so that that is a lengthier process, but it's one that, you know, one that if there is political will and energy to actually see this change, you know, that is the path to do it. Well, you certainly can see why an agency charged with doing something as complicated and important as running elections um, probably shouldn't be left to patronage appointees. It's like if you needed a plumber to fix the leak (laughs) in your shower, and instead of hiring somebody who's a plumber for a living, you hire somebody because he's your landlord's brother-in-law, so so he gets the call. Um, that that maybe that's an analogy for where we are. But on the mistaken release of sample ballot results as real results on Tuesday, who are the human beings who made this mistake? Can we name names? I don't. I don't think we can name individual names at this point. Um, the board, I think probably has identified the individuals involved. Um, and it sounds like it was, you know, it was this just the most poorly timed error, human error to not have reset their, uh, the cast vote record in the tabulation system to be able to do this ranked choice tally without these, you know, dummy votes in the system. Uh, I think there will be a question going forward about the accountability here. Um, You know, it's one of these things where I think a little bit of everything that we're saying is right, Brian. You don't want people who are not trained elections professionals to be the only people overseeing these elections. At the same time, there are people who are working at this agency now who are working very hard. They're working, you know, tremendous hours, seven days a week to try and get this count done. Um, And 
you know, I think we want to acknowledge that work and that some of these people are very good at what they're doing. But the problem is there is a lack of probably overall oversight and the challenge associated with decisions being made by this bipartisan, 10-headed board uh, that, you know, make things extremely challenging. And the fact that the accountability for when errors, when when people do make a really, you know, significant mistake, falls to these people who have political ties. Um, and so I think going forward, it is a very fair question to get to the bottom of what happened, who is responsible, and what's the accountability. Um, but I think for now, uh, the the effort is going to be focused on let's get through the end of this election. Right. And then longer term, something has to be done. Listeners, some of you may remember when Bridget famously uncovered a case in Brooklyn a few years ago of thousands of people mistakenly being taken off the voter rolls before a major election. Um, That caused new scrutiny of the Board of Elections. There was the case uh, a few months ago. um, Was it in the, sorry, in the um, presidential primary? Mm -hmm. We talked about this on the show this week, (laughs) where the uh, Board of Elections mistakenly sent absentee ballot envelopes um, with the or absentee ballots with the wrong envelopes so yes. it seemed like they were coming from elsewhere so that was a big snafu involving a hundred thousand voters um, and our colleague David Cruz has an article on Gothamist called ranked choice voting software company says Board of Elections ignored offer to help carry out citywide election um, this is going to be the last of it for today but can you describe it all what happened there yeah, that is um, an instance where the software company that you know made the universal ranked choice voting tabulator had extended an offer to the city board of elections to try and help get them ready for this uh, you know first citywide primary with ranked choice voting and um, really one of the largest tests of of the system in the country. And, you know, wanted to try to make sure that their employees uh, at the board were trained, uh, that they could potentially run a parallel count, Um, you know, a series of safeguards that, you know, in 2020 hindsight probably could have spotted um, what had happened in this particular instant. Um, The board uh, reportedly did not respond to those emails, voicemails and um, offers of assistance from the company. Um, You know, I can tell you that what was happening at the same time was they were running um, special elections in other parts of the city. uh, And the state board of elections was doing a pretty comprehensive test of this software so that it could be certified in time for this citywide primary. Um, That is by no means uh, an excuse, but uh, goes to explain some of what was happening there. And, you know, it is, as it has been reported, there, uh, the agency is dealing with some changes in personnel. Their executive director is currently on medical leave, and the deputy executive director um, has been essentially running the agency for the past several months. Um, and, you know, she has stepped in, Don Sandow, she has stepped in as the uh, executive director previously um, during leadership changes at the agency. But, you know, there's, I think, going to be a lot um, 
of reexamining of the agency. The state Senate has vowed to hold uh, hearings about this election. The state Senate, since the Democrats took majority control, has done probably the most work to pass election reforms. That's where, you know, we finally saw early voting and automatic voter registration and some of these changes to our absentee ballot laws um, get, you know, the support they needed by getting pushed through the Senate and along with support in the Assembly. Um, So there should be more that we learn this summer and into the fall about um, what actually happened here, how this agency could potentially be changed. And then ultimately, it really will fall on state lawmakers to to make some of these changes, um, since this is an agency that is ultimately governed by state election law. Well, the state Senate Majority Leader, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, said yesterday the Board of Elections is an embarrassment and makes New York an embarrassment when we should be a model of running good elections in the United States. So hopefully something will be done. Bridget, uh, I I guess you you told us you'll be covering uh, Maya Wiley's first press conference since the election coming up in a little while. So we'll be listening for what she says later in the day. You're reporting on that, and um, I have a feeling we will talk again before too long <laughs> right here. I think we will, and we've got our whole elections team out there doing it. Actually, Liz Kim's going to be there with okay. Maya Wiley today, but we will bring you the latest. on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hey, everyone. I'm Allison Mars. You are watching NBC News Now. Here's what's happening. It's a methodical, very difficult process. You know, as we're moving debris, we're just finding more debris that's just concrete pulverized. You know, it's, it's, it's extremely difficult. Day six of the daunting search and rescue in Surfside, Florida, plus details of a letter that warned about growing damage in the condo building just two months ago. President Biden heading to Surfside, Florida on Thursday, but today he's in Wisconsin taking his infrastructure pitch to the people. America has always been propelled into the future by landmark national investments, investments that only the government has the capacity to make. Plus, it's getting hot in here. Dangerous, record-breaking heat stretching from coast to coast. Is there any relief in sight? We start this hour with the sixth day of searching for survivors in the Florida condo complex. Two days before the beachfront condo collapsed, the Miami Herald reporting a pool contractor photographed these images of damage he saw in the basement-level garage. Sarah Blasco with the Miami Herald wrote that story. Uh, Sarah, these photos do not look good. Cracked concrete, corroded rebar. Uh, You're not saying who shared these pictures uh, with you, but what can you tell us? 
What I can tell you is I spoke to this pool contractor directly yesterday. And what he told me is that he was alarmed enough by what he saw. And then once he saw the news, he thought he needed to come forward. Now, of course, there's a lot of national attention. He, he doesn't want the press. And that that's why he does not want to come forward with his name. But he thought what he saw was serious enough that people should know. And let me point you to one part. Over those boxes, the gray boxes on the image, you will see a black cross. That's actually mm -hmm. rebar. That's supposed to be inside the concrete. What you're seeing there is that it oh, has wow. busted through the concrete. It is that corroded. This is a serious level of corrosion that um, our experts say, if it were under the building, it could have caused a collapse. Now, I just want to be clear with your viewers that this part of the building that is photographed here is not under the collapse site. It is off to the southern side of the structure. But if this okay. type of corrosion had existed somewhere else in the building, then or or beneath it, I should say, in the garage underneath the building, then certainly our experts say this level of corrosion is alarming. And even still here, it indicates a lack of maintenance in this building that is concerning. Yeah, sure raises a lot of questions uh, about the condition of the building. No question. Uh, Sarah, what did this contractor tell you about the restoration plans uh, for the condo? What, what else have you learned? So this contractor was actually there to bid for a subcontract in the 40-year restoration plan. His job was going to be basically cosmetic uh, things on the pool and replacing the pool equipment. And so what, what he was there for was different than what he saw. And actually, it, what he saw alarmed him enough. He thought his job was going to be harder. Again, he was just doing a tiny piece of this broader uh, plan, which was going to shore up different columns in the building. It was going to replace certain concrete slabs that an inspector had said had severe levels of damage to them. These are structural slabs in the basement of the building, rebar popping out of various columns in the basement of the building. This 40-year plan was going to be $16 million of renovations. And so this pool contractor was just bidding for a tiny bit. And that's why we only have these few photos, is he took photos of what might affect his job. And when he saw that rebar, he thought, oh, I have to tell my boss, this might be a more expensive job than we originally thought. We might have to do more to give access to that concrete so that concrete restoration teams can go in and fix it. All right, Sarah, I know we've said this already. Uh, we don't know the cause here. And and uh, I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. But let's go back again to what you're hearing from some engineering experts here. I mean, and what you've shared with us already. But just to reinforce here. Uh, this just looks like serious, serious corrosion, serious structural concerns uh, that, that needed immediate attention a long time ago. Right. So I think the most important document that we have right now is a 2018 report mm -hmm. by an engineer who came into the building and did an inspection. And what he said is that he found a design error in the pool deck which is actually off to the side of the of the corrosion of these photos that you're looking at now and and he said because of the way that it mm -hmm. was designed 
water did not drain properly and instead seeped into the concrete below into the garage, which is under the entire building, the part of the building that collapsed, that part of the garage had serious damage to some of the structural concrete, according to this 2018 plan. And I think the most important thing to note here is that this engineer said it needed to be fixed soon um, because this type of damage, this corrosion, once it's there, once that rebar is exposed, it can get worse very quickly. And then I will point you to a USA Today report from last Mm -hmm. night that broke the news of an update letter to that report which came in um, earlier this year in 2021, April. And and what it said is indeed that damage got worse. It did not include photos. We don't know exactly where that damage is, but that's what everyone is focused on now because if there was this kind of corrosion, for example, in a column, experts tell us, or even in a a slab, experts tell us that certainly Mm -hmm. could have collapsed under the weight of a building. But again, we just don't know at this point. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, uh, our reporters uh, on the ground are hearing from residents, some of them saying that they're really upset with the condo association because they feel like they did not maintain this building properly. What is the condo association saying about these photos and your reporting? What kind of response have you gotten so far? They did not respond to us directly, but what we've heard in other media appearances from the attorneys who uh, represent the condo association is that what they're saying is the price tag on this renovation was so high. Again, $16 million. That came out to almost $100,000 per resident, uh, I believe. That's a big bill to get landed with. And so what the condo association lawyer is yeah. saying is that the residents didn't want to move forward with this restoration. There wasn't enough in reserves. They had to secure a loan and that this caused tension. And what you can see again in that letter from April of this year um, from the condo association is that it, it's responding to comments that we don't know yet. But it, basically what it says is that we know that there has been a lot of discussion about this that there are concerns that we're, you know, overanalyzing or underanalyzing. Um, and, and basically what it indicates is that there had been a lot of disagreement about what to do with the report that it was initiated in 2018 and then updated in 2021. Sarah, there are so many questions about what happened here. Uh, I know you've been really working hard on that. Thank you so much for your reporting uh, and taking time when you're so busy to come on and talk to us. We're really grateful for it. Thanks for having me. These are the 11 victims identified in the condo collapse. 150 people still missing. NBC News correspondent Ellison Barber is at the scene in Surfside. Ellison, what's the latest on the search and rescue mission tonight? Yeah, I mean, it's ongoing. The presser earlier today, there wasn't any bad news. There wasn't any news of another body being recovered, which is what we've gotten from the last couple press conferences. But there also wasn't any good news, the news that so many people are hoping for, praying for, that they'd found someone alive in the rubble. Eleven lives lost, 150 people still unaccounted for. The weather here has been an ongoing challenge for rescuers. It has rained kind of really since this happened. And throughout the day today, there have just been moments of incredibly heavy downpour 
thunderstorms, all of that adding to what is already a really challenging endeavor for these rescuers. Rescuers are working 12-hour shifts, and when there's a shift change, you can see them walk off just drenched in sweat, exhausted from all that the work, all of the work that they are doing, and then another group goes back on, surely just as tired from not long before working a 12-hour shift of their own. There are rescuers, of course, from Miami working every minute of every day. There are also teams that have come here from Mexico and Israel. I spoke to the commander of the Israeli search team, and he says right now they're sort of focused on a particular part of these apartments, at least as best they can. Listen to what he told me. Right now, our challenge is to reach the bedrooms. And there is a problem because the bedrooms collapse, the, the building collapsed into itself and covers the bedrooms. So right now, this is the effort and, and we still have hope. And when I asked the commander if he still has hope on day six that they might find someone alive, clinging to life underneath the rubble. He said that he does still have hope. Uh, I want to read to you exactly what he told me when I asked him why. He said this, quote, each day that passes reduces chances. But I would say that one week, one week again, is a good time to say that we have made all efforts needed to find them alive. One week, that's seven days. We're on day six right now. Families are still holding on to hope as much as they can, but as every minute passes and there isn't any sort of good news, it's hard to not see some sort of big bad news coming down the way. But for now, rescuers are working yeah. as hard as they can, leaving no stone unturned. And they keep telling us that they really do think they can still maybe find someone alive. But you've got to think these next 24 hours, give or take, are really critical based on yeah. what we heard from the commander of the Israeli search team. Allison. Allison, I can't imagine what it's like to be one of those family members right now perhaps knowing deep down inside that bad news is on the way, but wanting so, so deeply to remain hopeful, uh, to have faith that they could get some good news, not wanting to give up. I, I know you spoke with a father uh, who was waiting for news about his daughter and son-in-law. I, I, it makes me want to cry just thinking about that conversation. Uh, what did he tell you today? Yeah, we met uh, Pablo Langesfeld and his son, Martin, there daughter and sister, Nicole. She was at home Thursday night in her condo on the eighth floor with her husband, Louis Sadovnik, and they were home with their pets. They loved animals and they've been missing ever since. They talked to us about what it means to try and kind of just hold on to hope. They are convinced that if anyone could fight, if anyone is still alive, that Nicole, their sister, uh, that she is a fighter, or Martin's sister rather, that she is a fighter and that they are praying that they're still there fighting. Let me, let me let you listen to some of what we heard. This is uh, Martin, who is Nicole Langsfeld, uh, her brother. Listen here. They had, they have so much to look forward to. They were just starting off their lives, lives together. They had a plan for a family, some things that now, are unknown and for six days to go by and not knowing if they're in there, if they're fighting, why things like this happen, 
it gets to you physically and emotionally. And That won't change until I'm told otherwise. I do believe miracles do happen, and I know I know there's people in there fighting. And I pray that my sister and my brother-in-law are one of those fighting. Nicole, or friends and family, call her Nikki and Louise actually just got married. They got married in January because of the pandemic. They just did a small little ceremony and got married at a courthouse. But her dad and her brother say that they were planning to have the bigger wedding, the bigger celebration with all of their friends after the pandemic ended. Instead of celebrating, planning for this very joyous life moment, they are now just praying for a miracle. They visited the site a couple times now, and, and Martin just told his sister that if she could hear him to keep fighting. Allison. Oh, Ellison, a couple starting uh, their life. Uh, you know what a beautiful time that is. I know what a beautiful time that is. It just breaks your heart to think that that might, that might have been the end for them. Thank you so much for your reporting today. You got me again. You make me cry all the time. Um, I, I know it's so difficult for you out there talking to these families and doing this hard work every day. So thank you so much. Major heat wave scorching the U.S., parts of the Pacific Northwest dealing with temperatures 30 to 40 degrees above average. The Northeast also feeling the extreme heat and humidity. Let's bring in NBC News Now correspondent Priscilla Thompson, who is in a sweltering Manhattan tonight. Priscilla, this is the hottest it's been in New York City this year. Uh, you look like you're handling it pretty well. As a New Yorker, I can attest that weather like this guarantees two things. You're seeing a lot of sweating and a lot of cursing on those streets. Allison, uh, definitely that. As a Texan, I'm pretty used to the heat, uh, but folks out here are, it's a little <laughs> bit of a challenge, it seems to be. Uh, the streets are still pretty busy, but if you we widen our shot a little bit, you'll see this area near the fountain that is normally full of people during the summer is not as crowded as it normally would be. I will say folks are taking advantage of the ice cream trucks that are out and about. They're sitting down for a few minutes, and then they are uh, moving it along because it is very hot out here. It's about 93 degrees right now. Earlier, it was 95 degrees and sunny. We've got some clouds that have come in, so I think that has helped out a bit. But guess what? Tomorrow is expected to be even warmer. Uh, New York City and the entire tri-state area under a heat advisory until 8 p.m. on Wednesday, at which point we may see some rain start to move in, which could help to cool things off just in time for the holiday weekend. Allison? All right, Priscilla, now that I know that you're from Texas, this explains it because we're coming after you. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's not even schwitzing. She looks so composed. You know how to deal with this. Uh, but it, listen, it's not just there in New York, right? Millions of people from Delaware to Maine under heat emergencies. And we laugh about the heat, but I mean, it can really be dangerous. What's the plan to keep people safe uh, in this scorching weather? Absolutely, Allison. That is a really big part of it. It's why we're seeing cooling centers that have opened up across uh, all five bureau boroughs of New York, uh, but also in Philadelphia. There have been cooling centers opened and even buses being used as cooling stations where folks can hop on and hop off to get a bit of relief. In Boston, they have actually declared an air quality issue in addition to heat advisories because this heat and humidity can really have an impact on folks who are sensitive to those issues. And to take 
lead even further up north. Acadia National Park telling folks not to go to the park, to stay inside. Park rangers responded to a number of heat-related calls yesterday, and they are trying to avoid that. And that is messaging that we're hearing from folks across the board. If you don't have to be outside, try to keep it inside. And if you are outside, definitely drink that water and lather on the sunscreen uh, because it is hot out here. Allison? Yeah, keep it inside if you can, unless you're Priscilla Thompson, who can handle all sorts of weather. Uh, you impressed me, my friend. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Allison. Now to the Northwest, where a life-threatening heat wave is shattering records. NBC News correspondent Guad Venegas is in Portland, Oregon, where it hit 116 this week. Millions across the Pacific Northwest struggling to find relief from the heat. It's unbelievable. We've been in Portland for over 20 years and we haven't experienced anything like this. Records, some more than a century old, shattering as temperatures soar 30 degrees above average from Oregon to Washington. This TikTok video showing toiletries at almost 100 degrees. In parts of Portland, some public transportation services shutting down Monday. The city streetcar system tweeting photos of power cable damage during the heat writing. In case you're wondering why we're canceling services for the day, here's what the heat is doing to our power cables. At the Oregon Zoo, a family of elephants keeping cool, splashing around in a swimming pool. Further south in Salem, temperature soaring to a record high 117. And in Seattle, three consecutive days of triple-digit temperatures for the first time on record. Today, we couldn't get any ice. Everything is completely gone. So we're just coming to the water just to try to stay cool. Heat so high, Amazon turning a company headquarters building into a public cooling center. To North Washington, Interstate 5 shutting down lanes with buckled pavement. Fueling these scorching conditions, what's called a heat dome, a ridge of high pressure acting as a lid, trapping hot air and sending temperatures climbing rapidly, leaving the Northwest facing that extreme heat. It is time to check in with Simone. She's got the latest headlines from NBCNews.com. What's happening? Hey, Allison. Well, we start with this. U.S. home prices soaring at the fastest pace since 2005. Now, that's according to the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Home Price Index that shows numbers increased by nearly 15 percent in April from the previous year. Economists say prices won't cool off anytime soon. And Maricopa County is replacing its old voting machines with new ones. The move comes after Arizona Republicans subpoenaed nearly 400 of the machines for an audit of the 2020 election results. County officials say they used backup equipment in municipal elections this year, but would use the new machines for its November elections. And in Abu Dhabi, anyone who is not vaccinated against COVID will be denied entry to nearly all public spaces. Now, the restrictions will begin on August 20th, but will not apply to essential businesses like pharmacies and supermarkets. Also important to note that children under the age of 15 and adults with exemptions to the vaccine will be given a pass here. And Brazil's president is sending troops into the Amazon to crack down on illegal logging operations there. The move comes as the country is seeing a surge in deforestation. And it's the third time the Brazilian president has sent troops to the Amazon for this reason. 
And a really fun story to end on today. A 70-year-old Connecticut woman living out one of her lifelong dreams at Yankee Stadium when she served as an honorary Batgirl. Now, Gwen Goldman said she asked the Yankees if she could be a Batgirl 60 years ago, but she was told she had no place in the dugout because of her gender. Well, finally, the team said it was time to make it right, greeting Goldman with a personalized locker and also giving her a chance to throw out the ceremonial first pitch. Gotta love that one, Allison. I'll send it back to you. Oh, yeah. What you're looking at there is me in 30 years. That's my dream. Oh, my God. That's so awesome, Simone. (laughs) Thank you. A blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America. President Biden taking his infrastructure message to Wisconsin today. NBCnews.com senior White House reporter Shannon Pettypiece is on the North Lawn. So, Shannon, the White House says this trip is about bringing President Biden's message right to the American people. So what is he saying to them about the benefits of this bipartisan plan? Well, it's trying to get into some of the specific details of it and make it a little bit more tangible for what it would mean for real people's lives. For example, he's emphasizing things like bringing broadband to rural areas, uh, fixing a bridge that might be the only bridge that leads into town or replacing lead pipes in the millions of homes uh, that that could affect. Here's a little bit more, Allison, of what he had to say. This is a generational investment, a generational investment to modernize our infrastructure, creating millions of good paying jobs. The human infrastructure is intertwined with our physical infrastructure. It's going to help us create more good jobs, ease the burden of working families and strengthen our economy in the long run. And I'm going out and I'm going to be out there making the case for the American people until this job is done, until we bring this bipartisan deal home. And you hear him there mentioning bipartisan. That's another part of the selling campaign he's trying to do out there to emphasize that this is a bipartisan deal because, of course, unity is this message we have heard from him over and over again since his inauguration. And so the president and his administration trying to show uh, that they are delivering on that unity bipartisan nature that they promised. All right. So that's how they're using this trip to connect with the American people. How are they using it to put pressure on Congress to get this done? Well, uh, yes, of course, all of these uh, public campaigns and road trips are about building support with the public in hopes that that will translate into support on members of Congress, because it is really unclear at this point, despite being able to get 10 Republican and Democratic senators together on this, whether they're going to have the 60 votes that would be needed to get this through the regular legislative process in the Senate. Uh, And that includes whether or not they're going to have enough Republicans as well as Democratic support. So the president acknowledging that he needs to get out there, make this sales pitch in the White House, knowing that this is going to be something that's going to take place over the course of the summer. No expectations that they're going to have an instant deal on this in the coming weeks. We're looking more like months. Okay. Shannon, the White House announcing that the president and the first lady are heading to Surfside, Florida on Thursday, of course, to visit the condo collapse. What are you learning about that trip? Well, the White House has said repeatedly that they didn't want to go here uh, until they felt they could do it without interfering with the search and rescue operations. Obviously, a presidential visit comes with a big footprint. Uh, We know the White House has emphasized that they are putting a lot of resources on the ground to try and help in this recovery, but also that they would like to see some sort of federal investigation into what happened here. And of course, as the president has been emphasizing infrastructure, our country's infrastructure 
is something that is really uh, central to what he wants to accomplish uh, as part of his first term as president. Shannon, you also have some new reporting on the White House's 4th of July push to declare independence, if you will, from COVID-19. Uh, so what are the big holiday plans and, and how do they tie into that messaging? Yeah, they're really using this holiday to uh, mark and tout the uh, achievements the country has made when it has come to vaccination and to tout these record low case numbers that we are seeing. There's going to be a large event at the White House. The National Mall will be back to the fireworks celebration as usual, as we have seen in the past years with no COVID restrictions being enforced. And we're also seeing the president on Saturday, or we will see him travel to Michigan to a tourist location to help promote tourism and the return of that state's economy. So really using this as a mile marker uh, to acknowledge how much they have achieved, of course, <clears throat> Officials say there is more room to grow, but um, certainly a moment of celebration the White House is hoping for. All right, Shannon Pettypiece on the North Lawn. Great to see you. A small syringe maker in Texas buying back stock. Why should you care, you ask? Because this was a tiny company until it won a multi-million dollar COVID contract from HHS last year and qualified for a PPP loan. So how does all of that add up? NBC News senior national politics reporter Jonathan Allen here to discuss this one. All right, John, let's start with what's going on right now. Retractable Technologies filing a stock buyback with the SEC, and they're also announcing a dividend payment. Could you explain this for our viewers who might not be quite as stock savvy as a gentleman such as yourself? Uh, it's fairly complicated, but ultimately what it means is uh, shareholders will benefit in one of two ways, either uh, they will end up getting paid for their stock um, or, uh, number two, consolidating uh, their shares because there will be fewer shares. The ones that they hold uh, will then be a, a larger share of the company. There is one uh, major stockholder, one primary stockholder in the company who is the CEO. So, John, take us back a year. A year ago tomorrow, June 30th, 2020, you and Steph Rule wrote this piece on NBCNews.com. COVID-19 helped this small syringe business boom. Then came the taxpayer-backed windfall. I repeat for our viewers, taxpayer-backed windfall. What happened here? Right. First, the company was struggling and it needed a PPP loan to stay afloat. Uh, ultimately, that loan was forgiven. Uh, shortly thereafter, they got a contract worth $83 million from the federal government to make syringes. Obviously, there was a huge need. Uh, for syringes, there were other companies, much larger sort of household name companies uh, that were available to produce uh, needles and syringes. But this small company um, got this $83 million contract. It was raised to $93 million. And then uh, shortly before the Trump administration left office, work uh, went on to start a second contract. They got another, I think, 50 or $60 million. Um, and ultimately, what ended up happening is the stock of this company went from uh, about a dollar and a quarter a share to where it is now, over $11 a share. So if you had shares in that company, and again, the CEO was the main stockholder, uh, you, were, uh, you were sitting on a whole lot more money than you were before. Well, certainly a whole lot of value, a whole lot yes. more value. <laughs> yes, a lot of value, a lot of cash there. Uh, John, always great to see you, my friend. And I'm feeling this what looks like to me like the new summer hair. It's, it's a good look. <laughs> My wife wants me to get it cut, but thank you. I appreciate the, uh, the vote of confidence, and I will take it up. It's summer. Let your hair down. My husband needs a haircut, too. <laughs> <laughs>
China escalating its media crackdown in Hong Kong, arresting another prominent journalist from a pro-democracy paper under its national security law. NBC News senior foreign correspondent Keir Simmons has the details. Hey, Alison, Hong Kong has become a key test of President Biden's election promise to defend democracy around the world and of his China policy. Last week, President Biden released this powerful statement condemning the closure of a newspaper in Hong Kong. China responded equally powerfully, and now another journalist has been arrested. New developments in a crackdown by China the U.S. is watching closely. Last weekend, Feng Wei Kong was apprehended at Hong Kong airport as he tried to leave the city and driven away. He was a leading writer for a pro-democracy newspaper, The Apple Daily. China's strong-arm tactics have seen a number of journalists at the paper led away in handcuffs. The paper forced to shut down. Applause in the newsroom last week as it printed its final edition. Long lines in Hong Kong to buy a last copy, not enough to protect freedom of speech. They don't want any newspaper to be holding them accountable. The arrest is the latest move in a battle between Beijing and Hong Kong democracy activists. After mass protests, Beijing imposed a national security law last June. In August, the US imposed sanctions on current and former officials, but outside pressure has had little impact. That same month, the owner of Apple Daily, tycoon Jimmy Lai, was arrested. And in January, more than 50 democracy activists were held under the national security law. Many have been jailed for opposing China's rule. Then in March, China approved changes to the electoral system, further diminishing democracy in Hong Kong. This month, another pro-democracy newspaper has scrubbed its opinion section. China's authoritarian president now determining Hong Kong's future with an iron fist. And Alison, the Hong Kong Journalist Association is accusing the police there of wanton arrest. The crucial question, will statements like this from President Biden and sanctions really be enough to confront China over democracy? Alison? Just when you thought the lockdowns were over, several Asian and Pacific countries bringing back their COVID restrictions, Australia, Malaysia, Hong Kong and Bangladesh trying to stop the spread of the dangerous Delta variant. NBC News foreign correspondent Janice Mackey Freyer has the latest. Allison, from Australia to Malaysia to Japan, this Delta variant is causing concern across Asia with new lockdowns. In cities like Sydney, there are restrictions that have been reimposed and stay-at-home orders in order to slow the spread of this variant, which we know is more contagious. There are four major cities across Australia that are now in lockdown. In Malaysia and in India, governments have reimposed restrictions there. Hong Kong has banned flights arriving from the UK. In Bangladesh, there are soldiers patrolling the streets in order to enforce the stay-at-home orders. Uh, The problem or the challenge in a lot of places across Asia is vaccine campaigns. It's the lack of vaccinations. In some cases, there are supply issues. In other places, it's been the delivery system. But across the board, from the perspective of Asia, it's disappointing. This is a region that had weathered the pandemic and now it's watching other countries around the world opening up. 
the vaccine rates, though, are comparatively low. You take Australia, for example, less than 5% of the country's population has been fully vaccinated. And so with less than a month to go to the Olympics in Tokyo, Japan is also seeing uh, a rise in COVID cases. There were 317 that were reported yesterday. It's the ninth week over week increase. And that is prompting fears that this Delta variant is going to trigger a fifth wave of infections in Japan. Um, it means that there's a very good chance that a lot of the restrictions and quarantines will remain in place for when the games get underway on July 23rd. The minister in charge has said if there's another state of emergency that's needed, then so be it. Already, there were two members of the Ugandan team that have tested positive with thousands of athletes and officials set to descend on the city. The Biden administration backing a new approach with drug users, harm reduction. So what does that mean? Well, Congress is funding things like clean syringe programs to keep drug users safe and just instead of just trying to get them clean. And you're looking right here at the reason why. Overdose deaths up nearly 30 percent from November 2019 to November 2020, according to preliminary federal data from the CDC. New York Times domestic policy editor Gabby Goodenough joins me now. Uh, uh, Gabby, in your reporting on harm reduction, Abby, rather, uh, you write, instead of helping drug users achieve abstinence, the chief goal here is to reduce their risk of dying or acquiring infectious diseases like HIV by giving them sterile equipment, tools to check their drugs for fentanyl and other lethal substances, or even just a safe space to nap. Uh, this is the first time Congress has given funds specifically for programs like this. Could you tell us more about the shift from both Congress and the Biden administration? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think that they're looking at the huge increase in deaths over the past year, which um, clearly stem in part from the pandemic and all the isolation, the loss of access to treatment, et cetera. But also this was a trend that was rising even before the pandemic. And, you know, we've done a lot. We've pulled a lot of money into treatment and we'll keep doing that. But not everybody is going to want treatment or have access to it. So the Biden people are just starting to focus on what we can do to prevent deaths rather than to get everybody into treatment. Harm reduction policies are pretty controversial. Critics say they enable drug use or cause an increase in crime. So what do addiction researchers say about them? They say that neither of those things is true. And that, in fact, it, it's proven to reduce crime. Um, they don't, you know, one of the complaints is there's a lot more litter from uh, discarded needles in neighborhoods. Um, but, but what the researchers really say is it's really proven the, these techniques to reduce not just overdose deaths, but the spread of infectious disease. We're seeing big outbreaks of HIV now in West Virginia. We're seeing an outbreak even in Boston. We're seeing, um, you know, different little clusters around the country. And, and also we're seeing a lot of hepatitis C around the country from intravenous drug use and the sharing of needles. So the idea is, well, it's great to be working on getting as many people into treatment as we can. It's also great to try to halt the spread of infectious disease and especially of overdose deaths with these techniques. Um, and, and yeah, the research says that. Oh, I'm that, sorry. Keep going. I was just going to say the research finds that it really does uh, prevent not only death, but the spread of infectious disease. 
You spoke with the executive director, I understand, of a harm reduction clinic in North Carolina about overdoses during the pandemic. Uh, aside from naloxone, she's advocating for another life-saving tool, drug checking programs. Could you tell us about those? What does that mean? Yeah, this is even a step more controversial than uh, syringe exchanges and fentanyl test strips because it's actually um, it's it's these spectrometer machines that you can use to actually test samples of drugs. It's kind of a legal gray area right now in the United States because you have to possess the drugs in order to be able to test them, and possessing drugs is not legal, um, at least in most places and in most amounts. But the idea is if you can actually test your the drugs you're about to use and see how much fentanyl they contain or whether they contain some other dangerous additive that might... Uh, kill you or land you in the hospital, um, it, it's worth it. It's going to save lives. So the hope is that we will take a cue from what some other countries are doing. New Zealand just uh, legalized this on a pilot basis for at least a year, I believe, um, and said they wouldn't prosecute anybody who, who checks drugs. Um, and I, I think it's just sort of the next step on the horizon toward making sure that yeah. people stop dying. Yeah, Abby, you said it's a legal gray area, but if the bottom line is to keep people alive, right, these are certainly programs, ideas, controversial as they may be, worth considering uh, to try to save lives. Thanks so much for coming yeah. on to talk to us about your reporting. Thanks so much. Take care. Should student-athletes be able to profit off their own name, image, and likeness? For the first time, an NCAA panel is saying yes. NBC News correspondent Stephanie Gosk shows us what this could mean for college athletes. A potential slam dunk off the court for college athletes, hoping to earn money from their fame. The Division I Council recommending an interim policy to the NCAA's board of directors that would allow student athletes to profit from their own names, images and likenesses. With the NCAA's Board of Governors set to meet tomorrow, the council's recommendation comes ahead of a flurry of state measures that will take effect Thursday, allowing athletes in places like Alabama, Florida, and Texas to profit. I think name, image, and likeness could help equalize opportunities for athletes, both men and women. Experts say star players aren't the only ones who would benefit. College athletes across the country will be able to sign endorsement deals. They'll be able to be paid to sponsor camps. They'll be able to be paid by going on social media and having a big following. And there is momentum on the athlete side. Last week's unanimous Supreme Court decision upheld a ruling that the NCAA can't block educational benefits like paid internships and computers for college athletes. In his opinion, Justice Brett Kavanaugh slammed the NCAA for thinking it's above antitrust laws, writing in part, the labels cannot disguise the reality. The NCAA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. For me, the next point is just educating myself on, on what comes out, what the NCAA decides to do. Graham Mertz, the quarterback for the University of Wisconsin, took to Twitter Monday, unveiling his own logo. He says his focus remains on the field while developing as a person off it. It's a great opportunity to grow and to, to grow your brand, but it's also how can you not let that take away from the team goal of winning games. I support my sister, Jamie Lynn Spears, talking about her sister's controversial conservatorship. NBC News correspondent Aaron McLaughlin has more. 
I'm not my family. I'm my own person. I'm speaking for myself. Jamie Lynn Spears, once always by her superstar sister's side, now reemerging in her defense in an emotional Instagram video. If ending the conservatorship, if flying to Mars or whatever the hell else she wants to do to be happy, I support that 100%. Jamie Lynn addressing her sister's conservatorship head on, saying she's completely behind what Brittany wants. I don't care if she wants to run away to rainforest and have a zillion babies in the middle of nowhere. I am only her sister who's only concerned about her happiness. In a dramatic hearing last week, Brittany begged a judge to end the court-ordered conservatorship, an arrangement that's given her father, Jamie Spears, and other conservators control of her affairs since 2008, following two involuntary psychiatric holds and a very public breakdown. Brittany calling the conservatorship abusive, alleging she was forced to perform, take medication, and attend therapy against her will, saying conservators won't let her get married or have more children, even preventing her from removing an IUD. Her father's attorney telling the court Mr. Spears is sorry to see his daughter suffering and in so much pain. Brittany's account prompting an explosion of support for Spears and criticism of her family, including an online petition asking Netflix to remove Jamie Lynn from an upcoming project for her alleged role in the dehumanizing conservatorship of her sister, Britney Spears. Jamie Lynn, who starred in the teen sitcom Zoe 101, firing back. But I can assure you that I've supported my sister long before there was a hashtag, and I'll support her long after. Fellow pop star Christina Aguilera also offering support to Britney, posting a photo of the pair's children. Aguilera writing, It is unacceptable that any woman or human wanting to be control of their own destiny might not be allowed to live life as they wish. My heart goes out to Britney. She deserves all the true love and support in the world. Brittany and her boyfriend spotted on vacation in Hawaii after the hearing. The singer using her own Instagram to apologize to fans for holding back in the past, writing, I apologize for pretending like I've been okay the past two years. I did it because of my pride, and I was embarrassed to share what happened to me. He calls himself the luckiest guy in the world, a California snorkeler bit by a great white shark. And he walked out of the hospital on the same day. Insane, right? NBC News correspondent Morgan Radford has his story. Kind of felt like kind of almost like a mosquito, like a sharp, uh, you know, like a pain and like slight push. And then basically I quickly kind of wrapped my uh, leg and I could see like, uh, face of the shark. The 38-year-old snorkeler Nemanja Spastyevic opening up about his face-to-face encounter with a shark. At that point, I was like, okay, like I, I got hit. It happened Saturday in the waters south of San Francisco. Spastyevic says he was swimming for crabs when the shark made contact. It felt like a very kind of like curiosity kind of uh, bite. I got like a 10 puncture wounds from the shark teeth and like they're in kind of two rows. Of- Spasievich started frantically kicking towards shore, saying the shark, which was no bigger than a dolphin, had no interest in pursuing him further. There was no kind of return attack or like kind of like coming back to me, but I wasn't looking uh, uh, the low surf helped him get back to land, but he wasn't in the clear. I could see like my spetsuit like already was kind of uh, in the sleeve, like filled with blood. And I was like, okay, yeah, like this is not good. Using his scuba gear, Spasievich quickly improvised a tourniquet around his leg and started looking up and down the beach for any sign of help. 
Basically, like, uh, I spotted a fisherman and yelled, help, shark, help, shark. I remember saying, it's life or death. You need to send someone soon. Emergency crews ultimately arriving, treating him with advanced life support measures before rushing him to a trauma center. I was asking, hey, is my leg going to be kind of good? Like, they were saying, yeah, like, you're going to keep the leg. So I was like, okay, like, I'm going to have a leg. I'm going to live. Like, what else I can ask for, you know? Like. An unforgettable experience, but not one, Spasievich says, that'll keep him away from the water. Uh, I think, like, sharks are not the bad guys. It's their kind of home. We are just visitors, and, you know, like, I'm going to visit again for sure. Hey, NBC News viewers, thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights, and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.